welcome to Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Good evening, everybody. We are back. Uh, it seemed like this was the longest break ever, Owen. Uh, I don't know about you, but it seemed like it was months that we were gone. Usually the time goes by fast, but like. I, I, I think it's because of how it fell or how the holidays fell or something like that, but it did feel longer than two weeks, which yeah. you know, I'm kind of thankful for. And then also I'm I kind am. of like, you know, let's get back to it. But, you know, you were an Energizer bunny of some kind over this break <laughs> with, with your work. And like every five minutes, you're like, I did this to the, to the website. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. You need me to do anything? No. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so, and then I'm like, and then you're like, send me pictures of things. I'm like, all right. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's right out well. But yeah, yeah. it did seem a lot longer, but I like it because now I was actually like, all right, let's get, let's get the season rolling. Let's get going. Let's, let's do this. So uh, I'm definitely excited to be, you know back at it oh hell yeah yeah, man i was i was jonesing like you know you can tell like before as we approach the end of the year like it just starts to like you're kind of like oh man i can't wait to the break can't wait to the break then the break comes and then you're like oh my god i can't wait to get back to the show and it just re-energizes you i love the break because when i come back i'm 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 super excited and ready to get shit done um yeah we got tons of new things that are happening and whatnot, but you know, tonight uh, we figured we'd kick it off. Um, you know, the season six, if you will, I guess. Do we God. do seasons? Do we know? I don't I, know. I, I, I call them seasons because it's easier for me to be like, you know, it's the end of the season, and I was like, ah, oh, it's the season premiere. You know, I am wearing a, I am wearing a tuxedo, so you know, it's good. I'm, it's glad. I'm glad. I know. Yeah. You have to be fancy with this kind of stuff. That's right. That's that's correct. Um, so uh, Ian is uh, Ian Bissell, for people who don't know, from S&J Reptiles. He was on the show a while back for the Condra Roundtable, right around this time last year. Um, but I've been trying to hunt him down to get him to come on where it's just him and talking about how he keeps and breeds Condros. That's happening right. tonight, which okay. is awesome. Um and uh, we'll get to that in a, in a couple minutes. But um, Ian is usually the guy that's getting us the Chondro guest. I mean, he hooked us up True. with Horace Fanning, and he hooked us up with uh, um, who was the other guy? Who's the guy that kept Sanzinia? Tom Burke? No, not Tom yeah. Burke. Uh, no, Tom something. He'll know. I can't remember. He'll know. Yeah, we'll he'll remember. I... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too many people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, you know, hooking up with Forrest Fanning led us to Brian Cusco and, you know, all these, do- yeah, it's just is awesome. So anyway, he hooked us up. But tonight we're focusing on what he does with S&J Reptiles. And um, Bill Hughes, how could I forget that name? Ben, see, ben my dad, see, my dad's friend is Bill Hughes, right? So mm. I immediately thought my dad, Tom Burke. Right, so I, I don't know. That's where I got confused. Yeah, anyway, your dad Bill Hughes doesn't keep Tanzania. Yeah, so there you go. No, I don't think he ever did either. Um, he should. So, what did we do on? So I'm going to say what I did on my break, and then you go can ahead. say what you did on your break. So I we got will. a <laughs> we got a bunch <laughs> of new things that are happening uh, as far as um, Ray Python Radio. 
one of the things, you know, I, I, I've been trying to have the mindset of just getting shit done, you know, stop mm-hmm. talking about it and just do it. One thing that's bothered me for a long time is the Morelli Python radio website. It's, it's, I, it was like I sort of was working on it, and then it kind of was like halfway through. It never felt right. I never liked it. So I went in over the break, and I tweaked it. And I think I'm, pr- I'm pretty happy where it's at. There's still stuff um, that we're going to be adding. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, if you go to, like, um, the Morphs of Morelia page, uh, it pretty much lists every base morph and every combo. There's a couple that I'm working on. I'm, I'm talking to a few people that are going to send me. That hasn't been worked out 100% yet. Anyway, they're going to be sent it. Once that's done, I'm going to start going in morph by morph and, you know, uh, explaining, uh, you know, what the morph is, uh, the history behind the morph, what the genetics are, uh, what mm-hmm. subspecies it's to, uh, you know, how it works. Well, you know, like th- those different things. So like Morelia Python Radio was always supposed to kind of be the hub uh, if you were into Morelia and where to go and who to, you know, who, who, who is, who breeds this and who breeds that and, you know, all these different things. So we got that going, we got the uh, subspecies page going and that's all tweaked up. Um, but one thing we did add, and we talked about this last year, but it just kind of yeah. never came to fruition, uh, a show note page. So like, yeah. I always wanted to do a blog uh, from Ray Python radio, but I could never get it to like, for me to be able to do it, I have to be able to like, I have a couple minutes at, you know, a break at work or whatever, so I can just pull out my iPad and work on it. Well, I finally mm-hmm. found the program that will do it from my Evernote account and then just load it straight to the website. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm so happy, man. You know, once you find that technology. That <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're not going to stop doing the NPR chat and all that stuff. That That's, right. that's still going to be there. But like what now we're we trying to do is – I'm trying to, we're trying to kick it up a, a notch, you know, so like the links or picks or whatever. So Ian, uh, you know, this is the way he rolls. Uh, he sent me tons of pictures, so many that I had to do four different separate blogs because of the amount of pictures that he sent. But if you go over to our website, MariahPythonRadio.com, you go to the news section, you'll see a little yellow tab button there. Just click on that. It takes you right to it. You'll be able to see uh, the show notes. So anything that we have news wise, or if we go on trips or anything of that sort, you'll, you know, it'll be over there. What we're also going to try to do, whether it's me, Owen, uh, who knows, maybe we'll take other people, uh, at some point to a, come a in guest. the Morelia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anybody, but the guest on the show, you know, see if they got a tip. Uh, you know, we used to do that before Morelia tip of the week. Um, so we're going to get that up and rolling again. Um, and it's right. just a little thing that like maybe somebody that, um, you know, there's tons of things that people do that they don't even know that other people don't know that this would make your job so much easier, uh, in keeping snakes. Well, and, and also it's one of those things that it would be nice to have that as if you could go back and find the tips, if you're mm-hmm. just starting out, I mean, I'm thinking about last year when we heard about, uh, working with that frontline spray for when it comes to mic stuff. That would be yes. a great tip of the week, and then that's there, and then we never need to, to post it up again. It's there for anybody who wants to look at, you know, looking for mite treatments. It'll pop up, and they can read up about it, and they can do what they got to do, and it's something that would be – we want to try to get all the information because 
over the seasons of NPR, we have had a shit ton of it. We would kind of want to get it all in one place so that everyone yes. can go and find it easily. You know, we've had yeah. shows on these morphs. We've had people who have created and built these morphs. And it would be nice to have all that information for you all. And we, don't, we want to get away from the people who are, like, who, who are asking the same questions over and over again. We, we'd love for it just to be like, here it is. And if you guys have a question, we swear it's up there. You just got to do a little bit of digging. You will find it. So yes. that's what we want. Yeah, so that's kind of the idea. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, if you go to the link page, all of the the carpet fests are there. You know, the people that we've had right. on that talk about equipment. Uh, you know, diff- other podcasts. You know, sometimes people don't know about some of the other uh, podcasts that are out there, and uh, there's quite a few now that you know, that kind of get our stamp of approval, I guess, if you, you know, not that that matters, not that, <laughs> no, not yeah, that no our cares. opinion counts, but <laughs> no you <one> know. cares. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, but, um, but, but if you, you like if, what if, we if do, do a good job, if, if somebody yeah. else does a good job, we're going to throw out to it. I mean, come on. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, that's, that's there. Um, just tons of stuff. So, you know, you mm-hmm. get a chance, just go over, check it out and, you know, uh, we'll be updating it more and more and you can see all the different morphs of, carpets eventually what we're gonna i'm gonna do too is eventually now move over to chondros and have sort of a chondro section as well um but you know that's further down the line i wanted to bang out the carpets first and you know get that all taken care of and and up to speed and ready to go the other thing that um i think i don't know and it seems like over the last couple years like Mm. at least for me I'm always focusing on what other people are doing and trying to stay afloat and what's going on. No, not in 2018. We're just going to worry about us. <laughs> no, I ain't no, got time to worry about other people, man. I don't care. Yeah. No, it yeah. <laughs> so, so it seems like because we're focusing on what other people are doing, it makes it hard for us to do what we're trying to do and trying to do it well. So we got two groups right. uh, really that we kind of set up and, you got to remember when we set up these groups, it was way back and it was just like when Facebook was just really starting to pump and the forums were kind of going away. So we were like, okay, well, where can we sort of get people to, to go so that we're all sort of together again? That's where Maria pick of the week came from. So that's, that's still our home base. And, you know, it kind of, to me, my feeling was, is it always kind of blended the two worlds together you know like carpets mm-hmm. and chondros were always like these two worlds that were sort of alongside each other but not together um so that's 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 trying to get it together i mean if you have carpets maybe you should have a couple chondros and if you have chondros you should have a couple carpets too um to me you know ian and i were talking about this yesterday but uh you know carpet python if you really want to get a chondro but you're nervous about it to me, my advice would be start out with a carpet mm. python. And you're mm-hmm. sort of going to get the feel for how Morelia are. And, and, and if you can keep that, then, you know, maybe it's time to move on to, uh, to Chondros. Um, so we got that. And then we have the NPR group page, which we kind of had. And, you know, it, I don't know. It's, it's like, we didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we have this and it's like, I have a page page and then there's a group. So we're truly going to try to get that group going make it our home base for the show. You know, we can post up any kind of species of Python you want. 
if maybe there's a you know maybe there's a colubrid that you like it's it's, it's really about there are many so our community so if you're yeah. into the show you know by all means man share what you got uh if you got questions i'd like to see more discussions we're going to try to do some polls on there and you know uh, Owen and I have a lot of trips planned for this year. He doesn't know that, or maybe he does. Know I don't. That. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> Wait, what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we got that, and you know, just just all those kind of things there. So that's going to be where me, like, we're going to be hanging out most of the time. We're really going to try to uh, to get those groups up and going, and, and give it a hundred percent. Um, the other thing that we are almost, uh, I'm going to post it up on the Northeast Carpet Fest page. And when Ian comes on, we're going to be talking about the Southeast Carpet Fest, mm-hmm. um, which is coming up uh, February 10th, I think it is. Yeah. Um, but the Northeast, we're looking at June 9th is probably yeah. when we're going to be, be doing that uh, second weekend in June. A um, couple people had a problem with the first week in June, so we figured those people were important. We wanted them there, so we're going to move it to the second week in June. <laughs> hey, like, like I always said, we can't have Carpet Fest too close to my birthday because I fear what would happen if I had to spend it around you people. So you True know, story. That, yeah, it, you would get a lot of love, Owen. No, <laughs> never. None. Yeah. So... Um, but June 9th worth works, and uh, obviously, when we get closer, we'll start doing all the things we normally do: getting lists together, food, uh, stuff for the auction. Um, I'll be brave enough and probably put my goatee on the auction block. That if we raise enough money, I'll shave it at Carpet Fest. So you know, Ooh. that'll be weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but you know, other than that, dude, I think it's going to be a great carpet fest again and we we even started planning we just picked a date and i'm already excited about it so yeah yeah uh, it's always a good time um mm-hmm. and it's awesome to see all these carpet fest you know i didn't realize until i did the website and you go to that link page and you see all the carpet fest there and it's like wow that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> pretty I, that, cool. that carpet fest is my favorite part of the show is like we did this it's like yes <laughs> yeah so that is awesome um, and then the only other thing that I did over the thing, like before we left, I kind of talked about starting my YouTube page for me personally, EB Morelia, like Morelia Python radio is more focused on the guest that's coming on. Um, right. Always has been and always will be. Um, but EB Morelia is my personal collection, what I do, how I keep whatever. And, you know, I raced around because I was like, Oh shit, I got to do the video today because I wanted to have <laughs> something on there. So that, you know, and it's, it's not the best, like, you know, I, I'm sure <laughs> it's going to be just like this show as I progress oh, forward, it's going to get better yeah. and better. <laughs> Dude, I was so excited that I was able to edit in a picture of Bullwinkle, the Bullwinkle jag into the video. Dude, I was like, oh my God, that is awesome. But really, probably more experienced YouTube yeah, people are yeah, like, yeah. yeah, that's, that's corny, man. But anyway, yeah, go over, go over and check it out. I'll post a link up. Uh, you know, I, I posted up a video earlier. I'll post it over in the uh, Morelia Python radio uh, chat. So we're going to talk about your trip to nerd and then exactly what, you know, you did over the, over the break and yes. then we'll get in on and we'll get going. But, um, All right. you know, what did you deliver to nerd? Uh, Boland's Python. 
Correct. There's a lot of like. <laughs> I caught some like there was like some controversy that Kevin McCurley had a Bowlins fight. Yeah. On. <laughs> Here's the thing is like because I looked at something today to say that Gourmet Road had a bunch of Bowling Pythons as well. So apparently, uh, a bunch of these bigger reptile breeders have caught the Bowling's bug. Um, so I did go up to a uh, 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 former boss of mine had an adult male Bowling Python that uh, he had been using for educational programs, and he kind of realized that um, little children don't give a damn what snake it is. There's no reason to have like a four thousand dollar snake. <laughs> you can just just get a ten dollar boa, and the kids are going to give you the same damn reaction. So uh, they he asked uh, my friend Andrew to sell the Bowens Python for him, which he did. Uh, and it kind of came through with the whole, you know, uh, Kevin wanted it, and Kevin's like ship it, and we're like it's you know January, so end of December, it's bad, so. He's like, well, then come on up. You guys can walk around. You guys can check it out, and we'll we'll do this thing. So obviously, I contacted Andrew. Contacts me. I contact you and Matt. Matt can go. You couldn't. So we left you here, and we all went up. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we didn't feel bad at all. But um, there was. Uh, so we go up and we deliver this Boland python. This beautiful male Boland python. He's actually really nice and sweet. So. He was really cool, and uh, of course we got to wander around Nerd, and I know that we went up there, obviously there was the retic room, and, and it was funny, the animals that we saw uh, last time we were up there that were in like the 41s and the 32s are now in like the big python room, and it's like, Jesus Christ, so they got really big, oh yeah, they got big fast, um, but they were, they're getting ready with their, they're right in the middle of their breeding season. And then we got to see all the cool stuff that uh, Kevin has going on. And he's got these plans to build these huge cages for the Bolins. Um, I mean, because I know one of the fishers is uh, one of his females coming out of a, a, a Freedom Breeder tub or something like that. That's temporary because he showed us all the plans that he's drawn up for, the, uh, for these guys. It's going to be huge. Um, yeah. He has now an adult trio. And then he had a bunch of babies, like still red babies. And they were gorgeous i didn't take any pictures of them because i didn't know if that was cool or not yet but right. they were they were awesome he had a <clears throat> ton of them um and then of course we got to wander around and check out all the really cool off the cuff stuff you know matt's talking uh bloods and borneos and uh we got to see the the caimans and andrews there so of course we're all talking monitors and all the other stuff and then uh God, my name's, I'm blanking on his name right now. We had him on the show. We did the retic show with him. Oh, my God. Why the hell can I think of his name? Damn it. Where's Matt when I need him? Um, but he showed us around, and he actually uh, sonogrammed a uh, monitor, a water monitor, or a few monitors, actually. With the oh, I was wondering where that picture was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. He, was, he was actually doing that, and he's showing us the follicles. He's saying how big they are, how big they should be. And it's like, dear God, and he's talking about how he wants to get, like, a new one that's more portable. Um, they let us play with the Caymans, which, again, almost walked out with the Cayman, which was dangerous. Um, then uh, we're just checking out all the other cool stuff that they got. And they actually um, showed us the micro-scale ball pythons or the, mm -hmm. the scaleless. 
microscale. They're like, oh yeah, it moves kind of weird because it doesn't have any belly scales. And I'm like, I I hate you. (laughs) I'm like, I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, eh, it's wrong. So, you know, (laughs) but uh, everything else down there, you know, of course it was an awesome time. The only problem I have is that the trip was so freaking long and it was the middle of like a snow ice slush storm down here. Yeah. So it was like, I was like, come on. Like I finally, I, I get to Andrew's house at like five in the morning, which nothing had happened. Everything was fine. We leave, we come back. My, my car's covered with ice and snow and I had to clear mm-hmm. it off and then drive home. It was, it was a long day. It was, it was one of those days where I had to pay my brother to come up here to entertain my dog for a few hours because I was gone the entire day. I don't think I got home till about 11 o'clock at night, but it was, oh yeah, but it was still a really good uh, outing out there. Uh, Obviously they got some good stuff that they're kicking around over there and some really cool things that I kind of want to check out. I almost, uh, I got to play with some uh, red tail rat snakes, uh, which I'm like, Oh, I love that. And they had caught some, eastern water that was like bright red and they were going to start working with that stuff i'm like this is awesome so it was a very cool time it was a very cool place and uh kevin and his entire crew uh thank them for being uh so uh-oh did i lose you owen <laughs> where'd you go he just disappeared <laughs> uh you there yeah i'm right here oh okay you kind of dipped out. Yeah, you cut out. Remember I said I was going to replace my headset during the break? You didn't. You had I one job. <laughs> and you expected it to get done. Six seasons, <laughs> yes. and you expected uh, it to get done. I don't understand yeah, go, who's more at fault here, me or you. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Josh or I want to say you. are talking yeah. about, right? <laughs> what? Is yes. that the guess? Yes, Josh. Yes, yes, yes. He showed us around. It was awesome. So, yeah, and, he's, uh, he's a cool guy. Very, very cool stuff. They did have, they had a, um, uh, downstairs in the store, I'm walking around, I'm looking at stuff, and I see a corner of my eye, someone said Maclots. So I'm like, ooh, and I start like just poking around and looking at it. It's a big tank up on their second level. And then it says underneath it, carpet. And I'm like, no! <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, screw this store. <laughs> I'm like, why? <laughs> So, you know, nice. uh, but it's, and it was funny because uh, Kevin and I did talk about it. They told him, he's like, well, what are you into? I'm like, I need Max, I need Team Morse, and the other stuff. He goes, he's like, you want all the weird stuff. I'm like, I know. He goes, is that a thing now? People seem to be wanting them. I'm like, people want them because you can't find them, which is why, you know, I'm the guy who wanted them before, and now I can't get them. So, you know, it's, he said he was going to try to look for some stuff for me, which is awesome. But yeah, uh, cool. great collection up there. Cool, cool, cool. Um, and I want a cow retick again. Uh, we're back to the cow retick. Uh, uh, yeah. Wanna, yeah. You, you you did get a retick over the break, though, I didn't you? did. Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> that very same day, I got my retick from Matt. Very I'm cool. I'm a retick so, owner now. <laughs> oh, I'm so proud of you. You got your big boy pants on now. God no more playing man. around with tiny little snakes. Now you got, you got the real deal. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out, Zero. <laughs> yeah. She, uh, um, she's awesome. I mean, she's inquisitive. She's, she's, uh, not nasty at all yet. Um, she ate her food, no problem. So, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to her. Uh, she's cool. And then, uh, 
She's had hippopotamus, right? Yeah, she I I, I posted a thing up on my Instagram of her, and they're like, what is she? I'm like, no idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> which apparently to retic people is like, what's wrong with you? So they, somebody weighed in and said, well, it looks like yeah. it's like, you know, this, 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 and this. So I'm like, sure. And then Matt comes in and goes, it is. And then he throws it out there. And I'm like, that, that's what she is. So right. like everything else, that like every time I keep asking him, what the hell is that thing that's over at his house? And he throws it out there. And I'm like, yeah, right, yeah, that. So it's going to be that for the rest of his life. I hope he knows that. It's going to be like, you know. <laughs> oh, and what's your retake again? I don't know. It's a platinum something, something, something. Yeah. That's right. It. Yeah. Good job. That's what Matt's for. Um, <laughs> all right. Enough of us blabbing. Let's get yes. uh, Ian on here and let's get going. Ian! Welcome back to Murray hey Python Radio. <laughs> hey, guys. How's it going? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to so you, too, man. Good. It sounds like you guys had a good break. Oh, it was interesting, and now we're back to normal time, and we'll just keep doing this till one of us is dead. I'll probably go before <laughs> Eric. So. The shenanigans resume. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, they can never stop anymore, but... You know, normally we, and I know we've had you on, Ian, and I don't know if we test, we touched on this when we brought you on, but why don't you give us a little kind of refresher of, you know, what got you into reptiles and where S&J kind of started from? Yeah, um, I think last time we just kind of jumped right into the whole condo roundtable, so we didn't really talk about a lot of that. Right, there's a, kind of roundtables are craziness. Yeah, there's really, nobody knows what's going on in roundtables, uh and it's just, you know, it, it, it's very hurting cats. So, yeah, this is a lot better. You know, so for me, it was, it was very similar, I think, to what a lot of other people talk about, you know, when they were kids and um, dinosaurs and, you know, just being interested in anything else outdoors. And for me, I've got a younger brother who's about two years younger than me, and when he was born – uh, my parents got me two things. They got me a fish tank and a train set. And uh, I guess that kind of set something off in motion. And then from there, my uncle got me a Florida box turtle not too long after the fish tank. And um, from there, it just sort of snowballed. And we had all kinds of stuff growing up, uh, box turtles and um, gopher tortoises and indigo snakes and corn snakes. And uh, at one point, we lived on the edge of a, a golf course on the driving range. And so about five, six o'clock when the golf course closed, there was basically 300 plus acres behind our house that was uh, unmanned, so to speak. And so um, we were just always finding all kinds of stuff, bringing it home and being told we couldn't bring it in the house and sneaking in the house anyway. So, you know, kind of like the typical um, childhood reptile type of thing. Um, but then as I got older, you know, that interest, you know, continued to grow. And it wasn't just reptiles. It was uh, aquariums and reef tanks and birds and uh, all kinds of just different critters, you know, whatever it was that was interesting at the time or, you know, something new from the pet store. But then actually, you know, over time, then it became, you know, a little bit more than just that. And I worked at, you know, a number of pet stores growing up all the way, you know, through graduate school even. And, um, and actually went to school thinking that, I was going to be able to get into aquaculture was what I was really interested in. And mm -hmm. uh, I ended up actually going into the animal feed industry after grad school. 
and worked for a company called Ziegler Brothers and was involved with them for almost a decade and um, did all kinds of stuff and got to sell to all the AZA facilities and got to go to all these breeders. Uh, we were selling rodent food is one of the things we sold. So I sold to a lot of the reptile guys and a lot of the big reptile um, breeders and a lot of big rodent breeders. And uh, it just kind of, you know, it evolved from there. I was lucky enough to be in Gainesville at that point. Um, I went to the University of Florida and then was in Gainesville after that. And there was a really strong herp scene in Gainesville. So, mm-hmm. you know, people like, um, you know, Bob Guerriere and Mike Lehman and Eugene and Cindy Bissett and Bill and Marsha Brand, Doug Foster. I mean, just, you know, like really great people. And um, so, you know, it just kind of continued to grow from there. And when I was in Gainesville, that was when I really started kind of my big reptile collection, I guess. And um, I could finally have all the things that I wasn't allowed to have when I was at home and um, just kind of grew the collection over time, working mainly with a lot of colubrids and smaller boas like candoyas and had a really massive sand boa collection and rosy boas. And I always tell people jokingly, when I met my wife, I had a two bedroom apartment in Gainesville and one bedroom was my bedroom and one bedroom was the snake room. And the hmm. first time she came to my apartment and she said, cause the door was always closed to the other room. She said, so what's in there? And I said, well, we should probably talk about that. <laughs> and before I could like the words come out of my mouth, she opened the door and walked right in and, at that point, there were probably about 200 snakes in that room, um, you know, not even counting babies or breeding season. And she kind of just looked around and surveyed it and closed the door and looked back and we said, well, that's kind of interesting. Let's go, you know, like, let's keep going out. So like we went out, I don't know where we went that night, but I was like, all right, well, she didn't go running screaming out of the apartment. So maybe she's a keeper, you know? Yeah. Um, so it just kind of went from there and, uh, so I was always interested in reptiles and field herping too. I mean, it, it wasn't just about keeping stuff, stuff in captivity. Um, you know, I was traveling a lot uh, for, for the feed business back then all over the country and would go herping wherever I was traveling. And I had the chance to go down to Central America actually three times. So I did some herping in Costa Rica three different times over a four-year period and um, did a little herping out in Colorado and did a lot of herping in Florida and, um, just always really enjoyed reptiles in general. And, and actually when I left Gainesville, I actually sold most of my reptile collection. Um, you know, it was, Oh, I time to get big boy job and, you know, move and start a relationship with my soon to be wife and didn't really have time for, for the reptiles as much. So I actually sold a big majority of my collection when I left Gainesville and moved back down to South Florida where I was originally from and one of the things that I kept at that point were my green tree pythons, actually. And um, mm-hmm. I only had a couple at that point and um, still had a few other things that just odds and ends. I still had a lot of turtles and some tortoises and bearded dragon. I don't know. We still had a lot, I guess. It seems like I sold a lot, but we still had a lot. And um, I had a friend in, in Gainesville uh, who was breeding green tree pythons. And so I started getting, you know, one here and one there. And, and so this all started in 2005 mm-hmm. and um, those animals just kind of grew up over time. And during that time I got married and bought a house and had two kids and, you know, kind of life went by and those snakes just sort of, they got put on the back burner, but almost in a good way. And they got fed, but not overfed, and they didn't get rushed or pushed or anything. And, and all of a sudden, about 2000, 
13, when those animals were now, you know, eight, nine years old, my wife said, um, so what are you going to do with these green snakes on a stick? You know, uh, are you, gonna, are you ever going to put them together? Or, you know, she's like, I remember you used to have that room full of snakes and just remembered all the, you know, the snake money that we used to have to do all kinds of fun things with. And uh, she's like, you ever going to do anything? You know, you know, it's been a while. They're just get, they're getting kind of big. And I said, you know, yeah, I should probably put them together. I think that was in 2013. And those animals were just, they were primed and ready to go because some of them were eight or nine years old and they had been grown up nice and slow and they were ready. And it turned out just coincidentally that the ones that over that period of time, of course, they didn't all make it, you know, that whole period of time, but I ended up with three adult pairs, um, Mm -hmm. just luck of the draw, which, you know, that never happens with chondros, but um, I put them together and I was lucky enough to produce two clutches that year. And those were, um, I think 2013, 2014, uh, somewhere in there. And, uh, and that was how S&J got started. And um, then slowly all the turtles and other random odds and ends either got old and died or they got rehomed or given away to friends or whatnot. And the Condro collection just started growing from there. And, um, a lot of people always ask me, what does S&J stand for? Um, so S&J is actually my kids. It's Samantha and Jonah. And uh, my wife actually does all of our marketing and our photography and our social media stuff. So, so it's really like a family enterprise, so to speak. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, early on when I was traveling around and I would see Condors, like, you know, at Cindy and Eugene's place, or I'd go out to California and I'd see Condors at Doug Price's place, or... I used to go to the Daytona show every year and I see them in the Condro coalition. And it was always something I was really interested in. And one of the nice things about Condros was, you know, getting married and having kids and everything else. I, I really wanted something I could focus on and something that I could get a lot of animals in terms of square footage. Um, you know, not like, like, you know, not like retex, like you're getting into Owen, you know, I mean, I, I can, yeah. I can get a lot of Condros in a small small footprint so to speak and i can probably get so, three uh, retics after i sell all my carpet pythons so you know i'll be retics and ruffies it's it it's all everything's exactly gone. yep exactly so chondros is you know it fits a bill they're you know kind of low metabolism lower maintenance i can fit a lot of them in a small space and so i just started focusing on them and um you know, like a lot of really successful reptile businesses out there, it's it's not just a one-man show and it's a partnership. My wife does – actually, she does a lot of our baby husbandry, taking care of the babies, cleaning them, watering them, changing perches, all that. And then she does a lot of the marketing and social media stuff. So it's, it's, a, it's definitely a labor of love. Um, you know, there's days that she comes home and I've been sitting feeding babies for like three hours. And she's like, how many did you get to eat? And I'm like, none. I'm ready to kill them all. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> So it's uh, it's nice to have somebody to help with some of that other stuff when uh, you know when you've got your hands full. But S and J just sort of started from there, and it was those three original pairs that really started it all. And um, I have been accused of being a chondro hoarder because I yeah. don't really like letting a lot of them go, especially because you don't know what they're going to look like. And so, so I have held back a lot over the few the few years that we've been breeding and. So, um, so the headcount is is swelled from those original three pairs, and um, it's uh, but it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it, and it's the first time in my reptile keeping career. And I'm in my 40s, so I've been keeping reptiles, you know, for quite a few years. 
Um, but it's the first time I've ever been disciplined enough to focus in on something very, very specific. And it definitely has, you know, advantages when you're not, you know, trying to keep 20 different species or even more than that, or, you know, lizards and snakes and frogs and turtles all at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. You can really focus in on the husbandry and dial it in, which, which that part I've really enjoyed. So what is your focus at S&J? Obviously it's chondros, but is there a specific project within the chondros that you're working on? And I know you say that like you're pretty focused on the chondros. Are there any fringe species other than Grigio pythons that are hanging around? Well, you know, it, it was all green tree pythons until, until. this past year. <laughs> until this past year. It was, there literally was not another reptile in the house other than green tree pythons, with the exception my wife has a, a pet turtle um, that, that we've had, like, <laughs> since before we were married. So we've had the turtle for, I don't know, like 10, 15 years. Um, other than that, literally there was nothing in the house but green tree pythons. And then... Um, it was actually, uh, I think it was right after he was on your show, I made a yes. trip out to Las Vegas <laughs> to see Bill Hughes. And um, Bill is like the dark Sith Lord, you know. He's like, come to the dark side. Let me tell you about arboreal boas. And, um, and I went to visit Bill, and it was, it was actually really cool. We had a good time. We did some herping and talked snakes and, and whatnot. And um, he's got a really cool collection. And, and really kind of got the, the itch at that point. And then, um, you know, I, I'm friends with Forrest Fanning. And so we talk often and talk about boas and, and Harlan Wall. He's got a whole bunch of arboreal boa projects. And, uh, and then I met Keith McPeak in Daytona. And he's talking in my ear about Amazon tree boas and emeralds. And so it was just like, it was just a matter of time, right? I just, uh, a matter of time until I couldn't take it anymore. And I had to have something other than conjures in the house. But I decided I didn't really want to go. I, I'd done Kendoya in the past, and um, they're almost worse than Condors to get started sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, so I really wanted to try something different that I hadn't worked with before. And so uh, Corallus really, you know, kind of was, was the obvious answer to that. So, so I have started to dabble in a couple different species of Corallus. And uh, I also have one pair of Sanzinia in the house now. And, another pair coming from Bill's at some point when the weather clears and, and we get things uh, arranged to ship those out. So, so there will be some other projects. They will be non-green tree python projects, um, but they're kind of still in the same, the same kind of area as far as the boreals. Arboreal and, green um, snake, yeah. So, <laughs> well, you know, they're not all, they're not all green, but. Uh, not anymore, yeah. Arboreal snakes. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely have interest in the other Morelia too. I mean, um, uh, I went down and saw Derek Roddy. He lives not too far from me and, and checked out his collection. And um, as gorgeous as blackheads are, I, I just don't think I have the space for that. But he's been bugging me that I really need some jungles in the collection, some, some black and I yellow. I would agree. And, yeah. um, and certainly rough scales, I think, are, are a nice I would also that. agree. It would be nice to work with. <laughs> but uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to justify, you know, like, all right, so I got to sell these green snakes to make room to put another snake. And um, so it's, Ian, then I goes back to that hoarding. Ian, when you come down, when you come to the Northeast Carpet Fest, I will, I will give you. You give us what? You just dropped out. 
<laughs> was that like, like the big the big build up? <laughs> yeah, it is. You you dropped out. All we heard God, was, damn it. I'm gonna give you you the invitation <laughs> to come up here and play with my rough scales, and then you can go home and you're gonna end up buying like four. So that's how it goes. Yeah, I was already talking to Dave D about them when I saw. There you go. It's done. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it would be nice to have some roughies. Um, it's it's funny because you get you get so far uh, the the pendulum swings to work with just one species, and then you get to the point you're like, like oh, if I have to look at one more green sheep, one more of you, to open you one go more the other way. Like, yeah, I just need <laughs> something different. So, um, you know, they're actually all all the boas are still in quarantine. None of them have been here for longer than a couple months, and none of them are in the main collection yet. And so I haven't mm-hmm. even worked with them a whole lot, but uh, I also have a number of animals that are still kind of out and about floating around either waiting on weather or involved in other breeding projects. And I know we're, we're going to talk about that at some point here. Um, so I, so it, it will be exciting when I actually have a bunch of non condors in the house to actually work with, but, um, right. but I still love my condors. They're not, you know, it's not going to be like a wholesale fire sale replacing them all with Corralis, <laughs> but, uh, sure. but it'll be nice to have some other stuff. And, and it is interesting to, it'll be nice to not have to worry about eggs, um, whether it's them being laid or hatching or whatnot. So, um, so it'll be, it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to working with some of the, the different Corrales and, um, and the Sanzinia especially. You should do Epicrides. This way I can send you some Dominican boas and get them away from me. So <laughs> that's another option they get too. Pretty don't... Big, though. Not necessarily. Mine are huge. They don't have to, they don't, don't, every idiot wants to get them 10 feet long and hold them out in the sun so they turn bright red, and then they die when they're four. You know, it, it's like any other snake. You keep it relatively small, they'll give you about 10, 12 babies, and you call it a day. Please, for the Lord, yeah, God, I would, take them. <laughs> so. <laughs> I saw some of those um, down at Crutchfield's place that he keeps in those big outdoor pens, and I mean, yeah. some of them are, some of them are, are big. They're, they're, yeah significant animals they're not they're not small by any means no but if you keep them the size of a carpet you can get close to 20 babies and call it a day so at least that's my experience there you go all right well let's break down your approach to let's talk about how you keep chondros um you know uh maybe some of the misconceptions about chondros and then we'll just go through like uh your setups and such yeah, so, you know, I am kind of a minimalist. So, okay. you know, I know some people have very elaborate naturalistic terrariums and, you know, like Evan down in Texas, you know, he probably cringe when he sees my setup because I don't have any bromeliads. I don't have any, you know, vines <laughs> and wood and, you know, I don't have any copepods or isopods or anything living down in my substrate. But, um, you know, I... I do what what is simple, what makes the maintenance really easy. It's the the kiss method, you know, keep it simple, stupid. And, um, you know, I I met Eugene and Cindy Bissett years ago when I lived in Gainesville, and I've heard Eugene say it a hundred times, you know, be a student of the serpent. And Mm -hmm. I feel like if you take that and you combine it with Bill Hughes' benign neglect theory of reptile husbandry, you know, and and you merge that with keep it simple, stupid, and it's like all of those things, it's kind of like that's how – that's how I approach it. And so it's, you know, it's paper towels for, for substrate. It's newspaper for substrate. It's 
plastic deli cups for water bowls, so they're easy just to pitch them and replace them. It's plastic perches, so they're easy to clean and sanitize. Um, I use racks for all my babies, and um, I sent you a bunch of pictures that I'm sure you're, you'll you'll post up for people to see. But um, you know, for me, it's it's really about keeping it simple because I, I need to be able to go through them often and quickly, and you know, having everything uniform and just simplistic is is just what works for me. Um, you know, if I was keeping just one or two animals for display animals, I'd probably want something more naturalistic and, you know, a beautiful, like, naturally planted vivarium. But it's, um, you know, it's just not practical when you have a big collection. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I just kind of go that simple way. I think as far as misconceptions, I think probably the biggest one is um, that they're all these vicious man eaters that are just going to like, you know, attack you at, at the first opportunity. Uh, and that's not to say I don't have some conjurers that would do that to you, especially if you stuck your hand in there at night. Um, but I think the misconception that they're all mean um, or that all Biocs are mean and all Arus are, you know, placid, you know, um, I, right. I often get people that will message me and they'll say, uh, well, I want the friendliest one in the clutch, you know, or which is the most tame one, or do you have any Arus because I hear those are good for beginners, or I don't want a Biak because I hear the, they're all you know, really mean. I think uh, just like people, they're all individuals, and uh, one of the worst bites I ever took was from a, a U.S. captive red sarong male. Um, it was my fault. It was a feeding response, but, you know, it wasn't his fault, and I've had some Biaks that are just puppy dog tame. So, um, and that's not to say that all Biaks are puppy dog tame or that all sarongs are mean, but I think that the misconception that by locality type or by phenotype, um, you can determine the personality of an animal. Uh, mm-hmm. I just, I think that that's probably true of any animal, but especially conjures. And so I think that's a big misconception. And the fact that probably the other one is that they're difficult to take care of, you know, that their husbandry is difficult. I think, they are sensitive and their husbandry needs to be, you know, on spot uh, or on point rather, but um, it's not like they're difficult. They don't, they're not a high metabolism animal. They're, you're not cleaning urates and, you know, fecal matter daily. You know, it's not a, it's not a colubrid. It's not something that's, you know, it's not a high maintenance animal in my opinion. So I think probably those are the two big misconceptions that, that they're all mean and that they're hard to take care of. Um, you know, my kids, like I said earlier, they're really involved with things and they like getting their hands on the snakes. And I mean, I, I've got pictures of them holding, you know, neonate chondros and, you know, just doing whatever they want with them. And the, the, the snakes don't care. Um, I also have one that we nicknamed feisty pants because it bit my son and it bit my wife and it's bit me. And that one just is feisty. And I don't know why, <laughs> you know, out of a whole clutch of, you know, 18 or whatever, that one just has a bad attitude. So, um, you know, I just think that they're all individuals, and it's uh, it's unfair to say that just because they look a certain way, they're going to have a certain personality. And and some of them are actually really quite tame, and um, and even some of the ones that are a little bit, uh, I would say, high strung initially. A lot of times, they they calm down over time. Right. Now, do you regularly handle your your snakes, or is it just a maintenance like? Some people, you know, for I know, me, that's, that's like hit or miss with chondro. Some people are for it. Some people are against it. Well, not against it, but don't really do it. 
What's yeah, you know, for me, I don't handle them. I don't handle them regularly just for the fun of handling them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we have to shift them or handle them, whether it's cleaning cages or introducing them for breeding or moving them from, you know, baby racks to grow out racks or whatnot. Um, so, I mean, we do handle them regularly, and it's also a good way to kind of check the health of the animal, make sure they're alert and, you know, their tongue flicking and they don't have any, you know, um, like weird skin folds or kinks in the back or anything like that. But at the same time, especially when they're babies, they can be really fragile. Um, you know, we try to limit the handling of the babies as much as we can other than, you mm-hmm. know, for cleaning cages or I, I do take initial weights on them before when I set them up individually. So a lot of times, you know, we'll handle them then, but, um, but, you know, they, I have had animals that have been mishandled that, you know, you can, if you're too rough with them or you can pinch one of them in a rack when you're closing a bin without paying attention and you definitely can hurt them. They've, they've got a fragile spine and I would say that that's probably, you know, the downside to handling them. But I also know I've sold plenty to people that have bought them as pets and so they want to have that personal interaction with the animal and, uh, you know, we, we talk about the fact that they're fragile when they're young and then, you know, over time they go ahead and they start handling them and i've had people tell me that you know they can sit on the couch watching tv and they hold them now and but they're totally chill and so it's uh i think it's really all about the individual animal and then also taking your time with the animal you know they're not Mm going to be you know it's not a corn snake it's not a ball python you're not going to just reach in the first time and pull it out and you know go sit on the couch with it and and chill and it's going to be you know relaxed it it's going to have to get used to its surroundings and I think handling them when they're young is probably something you got to do with a lot of caution. And then as they get older and they're more used to it and their, their backs aren't as fragile, you know, it's probably all right, but you still got to remember it's, it's an arboreal snake and it, it is sensitive to, you know, or subject to spinal kinks, but you look at a lot of the, the field data on them. A lot of times they find them on the ground, crawling around, moving all over the place. And certainly, uh, you know, at night, a lot of times they're cruising the males, especially. So, I don't think it's a problem to handle them. It's, but it's also, you know, like sort of handle at your own, your own risk, yours and the snake sometimes. Right. Yeah. I think uh, it was Dan uh, Malari's uh, DM exotics video when he went over to, uh, did he go to Kofiao or yeah, that's where it was. And he, he found them and then like the chondro was just like, I don't know if you've seen that video Ian, but it's just like perched on a twig. <laughs> it's just like right yep. there on the ground, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, we have yeah, this, he's had I one think, on a twig and one on a rock. Yeah. Yeah. So we have like this can, at least in my mind, you always think like, you know, they're up in a tree and they're high up and, you know, you know, no, they're right down there at the ground. And uh, I thought yeah. that was pretty cool. I, I have a couple that from time to time will spend a little bit of time like on the ground or even under the newspaper and, I think that's a common post that I see on Facebook a lot. Like, you know, my, my conjures on the ground, what's wrong with it? And, <laughs> and a lot of times it's, it, it can be stress related. So, you know, right. I don't want to say like it's normal for them to sit on the ground or anything, but, um, but again, just knowing the individual behavior, like I have one and uh, it's a biok and, and I, I typically, if, if she's on the ground under the paper, I usually know because she's getting ready to shed. Um, but she just, she likes to go to the ground and she, she even will eat a frozen thawed rodent off the, off the floor of her cage. 
Um, really? So it's just a person. Yeah. She sometimes she doesn't. She gets kind of spooked and she doesn't want to take it off the forceps. And if I just leave it on the floor of the cage, she'll go down and eat it off the floor. So like when you when you go in there and you see a brand new, you know, I know you're talking about its individual animals and such, but what's your mindset of when you see that animal first on the ground? Like, are you like, oh, let me double check this or you just don't sweat it or like what what's going through your mind? Well, I think it depends if it's during the day. Um, mm-hmm. And I've never seen that particular animal on the ground. I'm probably going to want to investigate and see what's going on. Um, okay. But I'll tell you at night, I mean, a lot of the animals, um, you know, not so much adult females, but certainly males and, and sub-adults, they're moving around a lot at night, I find. You know, sometimes really? they're cruising. Um, especially it seems like if you've just cleaned their entire cage and it's nice and clean and new newspaper, new water, they're like, cruising all around, spraying urates, taking a, you know, big bowel <laughs> movement right on the clean newspaper. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so I think um, it just depends. Like if I come in in the morning and everyone's sit- sitting on a branch and one that's never been on the ground before is on the ground, I'm probably going to be like, huh, what's going on with this one? Um, but because like that particular female biak, I just, over several years, I've gotten to know the fact that she likes to go under the paper when she's in shed, um, you know, it wouldn't worry me too much. I mean, now she just shed last week and she's under the paper again. I might, I might want to see what's going on. Um, gotcha. But, you know, I think, um, again, it's student of the serpent. You got to learn the behavior of the animals. Um, they're all different. And, and while they're all conjurers, they don't all act exactly the same. Um, sure. Individuals you know. just like people, right? I mean, <laughs> you have some people that uh, stress easy, some people that don't. You know, um, yeah, <clears throat> cool. Yeah. So, um, so you were asking me about my setups. Uh, do you want me to t- yeah. talk a little bit about those? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I do have a question about, uh, when you're going through like, uh, one thing, if you can hit on, like, I'm, I'm curious, like those cool stickers that I guess they're stickers or plates or whatever you got on the front of those tubs, like what's going on with that, but talk about your setup. Oh yeah. So those are just stickers. Um, so my wife, like I said before, she does all of our marketing and everything else. And uh, her dad is in the sign business. So he does all ah. kinds of like vinyl stickers and lettering and signs. And um, it's it's nothing reptile related. So she's always like thinking up something. And I guess she hated my little like index card cut squares of paper <laughs> that had like ID numbers or whatever on them. And so she, uh, she had her dad print me up like 500 of these stickers and uh, um, she does all kinds of stuff like stickers and magnets. And she's always looking for different ways to promote S and J and get the name out there. But I think it was more, she just thought that like it didn't look nice. Right. She also stickers <laughs> made up for me. And then, but I still have to hand right on the name and the ID of the animal. So I think she's mm-hmm. now she's, she's rethinking the whole thing. Like, you know, can we go to something that eliminates Ian's handwriting completely? <laughs> Type to everything, um, yeah. You're exactly. the problem. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm the problem. But uh, yeah, so it's just, you know, um, I'm pretty meticulous about my record keeping. So I have data cards on every animal, kind of old fashioned, I know, but I actually had an old data card from Ophiological Services from Eugene and Cindy Bissett. And so my wife kind of reformatted and, and took that design and we adapted it a little bit. And so I keep you know, records on all the animals and every cage is labeled so I can cross-reference. And 
I always tell my wife, if anything ever happens to me, like, you know, tell Harlan not to sell anything for less than $500 an animal, you know, like <laughs> here's all the records, all the animals, you can tie everything back together. Like don't let anyone tell you it's not worth it. Um, right. But yeah, so I, I keep pretty meticulous records and it also helps, um, you know, like when, when having all the animals easily labeled when you're, when you're going through and you're feeding a dozen or two animals at one time, or you're doing a whole rack of babies, you know, you've got a stack of data cards, you've got all these animals and you just want to be able to go back and forth. So, um, so I just, record keeping is really important, but, uh, as far as the setups, like I said before, it's pretty simplistic. It's, um, you know, I know some people like tubs, some people don't like tubs. I saw Forrest and Cody were having that kind of debate on Facebook earlier today. Um, but t- it, tubs just work really well. If I could have all my animals in cages, I would, but it's just a space factor. But I start the babies off in shoe boxes, and I use um, – I have a lot of sea serpents, baby racks, and, and they work yeah. really well. It's, it's very simplistic. Mm-hmm. The, the baby condors just do better in small enclosures. And I know everyone – especially when you style them a baby, like the first thing they want to do is stick it in a big exoterra. But the truth is they just do better in these little, these little spaces. And so, um, so I do the babies in, in this, the baby racks from sea serpents. And then I also use a lot of the, uh, the 3d printed perches by David Brahms at, uh, at SD. Um, yes. those things work really well. And, awesome. um, basically I can keep babies, uh, about until they're yearlings in those baby racks. So a lot of times, okay. the whole time they're here, they're in a baby bin because oftentimes, you know, once they're somewhere between three and six months, I'll start offering them for sale unless I'm hoarding them all back, in which case mm-hmm. they just stay here forever. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so sometimes they never even make it out of a baby rack when before they get shipped off to a, to a customer. But they'll stay in those baby racks until they're about a year old and, it's like I said, it's simple. It's paper towel. It's a perch and water. And that water gets changed, you know, regularly. I use deli cups so they're disposable. And then when they're about a year old, give or take, just depending on, you know, how, how fast they've grown or, or how much space I have in the next rack up, you know, if there's a log jam or whatnot, uh, I'll move them to, I've got these boa file um, grow out racks that um, I was fortunate enough to get from the Sutherlands out at TSK. They were getting rid of some and, I don't know if Bofo even makes these anymore because I don't think the it's a Rubbermaid bin. I don't think it's available. But um, uh-huh. I use those for grow out. And it's the same setup, paper towel and a water bowl and a perch. And they can stay in there um, for a good, another solid year to 18 months. So you're talking until they're somewhere between like two and three years old. And at that point, um, they've already – for the most part, gone through their ontogenic color change. I usually confect them at that point. And at that, a lot of times extra males get sold out of that rack. And then if it's a male that I'm growing up for breeding or if they're females that I'm growing up for breeding, they'll stay in there, like I said, until they're about two or three years old. And then they'll move over to adult cages. And I use a lot of the, um, the two-by-two and three-by-two cages from Jim at pbccages.com. Mm-hmm. And I go to pay, I, from paper instead of paper towel. I use newspaper. They've got radiant heat panels, but the same setup: plastic perches, deli cup for a water bowl. And um, I do keep some of the males in these large uh, uh, reptile basics racks. So I've got a, okay. some of the smaller males will go in those, just 
for space considerations, but almost all the females are in, in those cages. I've got a few that are boa file that are set of 24 cube. They're like 18 by 24 by 24, just because I can't fit a full 24 inch one at the top there against the ceiling. But um, so that's pretty much it. So then once they're in those adult cages, that's, that's going to be their caging um, for the rest of the time that they're here. So it's, it's pretty simplistic. It's three basic stages and they kind of just work through it as they grow and get bigger. So what are you talking about as far as, so you're using radiant heat panels uh, for the adults and heat tape for the babies. What do you, what do you do for as far as temps go? So everything's controlled um, by Herkstats. So I use, I've got a, a variety of different units. Uh, the babies generally I'm going to keep a little bit warmer and the night drop is not going to be as significant. So the thermostats are usually set um, depending on how I've got it set up and which thermostat and which rack. And um, some of them I've got the probe like right on the heat tape and a couple I've got the probe that's actually in like an empty tub. So usually the thermostat is set somewhere between let's say 85 and 88 or 89, um, just depending on kind of over time the way that particular rack is performed for me. So I'm really targeting to have a heat gradient in the baby tub of somewhere in like the mid to high 80s on the warm side and probably closer to about 70 um, on the other side. So, um, you know, you get a pretty big gradient. I'm sorry, not 70, 80 on the other side. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe 78, 79 on the coolest side, you know, 87, 88 on the warm side. It's almost a 10 degree gradient, but the babies I find will, um, you know, they'll sometimes they'll sit further back in the tub because they feel more comfortable because it's a little bit darker and they don't, you know, they don't feel as exposed, um, but they really want to be a little bit cooler. They don't want to be right up against that heat. So, um, so I like to give them that ability to thermoregulate within that shoe box. But at the same time, I don't want to let them get too cool. So high seventies is about as cool as I want them. And I'll give them a few degree night drops at night, but, but not, not significant. It's just a couple degrees. Gotcha. And then okay. um, when they go into the grow out racks, it's, it's the same sort of thing, but they're uh, like those boa file racks. Um, I have to set the thermostat pretty high. Like I think it's almost 90 degrees. Uh, in order to get the temp on the warm side of the tubs to be about 87, 88. And um, they're, they're smaller tubs com compared to the size animal versus the baby. And so, um, so those I give a little bit more significant night drop so that they, can, they really feel that, that difference in temperature at night. And then, um, and then the adult cages, those, um, if they're the ones with the radiant heat panels, then they're going to be set, you know, mid to higher 80s during the day, and they're going to have a pretty significant night drop. So, uh, like this time of year, they're going down into, you know, mid to low 70s at night. So, um, if they're not breeding, then they won't get as significant a night drop. But, um, okay. you know, it just kind of depends. But night drop is sort of relative, too, because we're talking about the warm spot in the cage, and there's a, you know, there's a gradient within the cage. And then mm -hmm. we also are talking about South Florida where with the exception of last week where we had winter for like four days, you know, it's, <laughs> we're in the subtropics. It doesn't get that cold. And so I'm right. a little bit reliant on, you know, oh, it's got to be a hard cold front where I leave the window open a little bit to really move the, the, the temperature down because 
know, even if my wife cranks the AC at night, you know, I'm not getting this, the room's not going to be in like, you know, in the sixties or the fifties, unless we, you know, I've got a way to really cool it down. So, um, but I use temperature as more one of the stimuli as opposed to the, the only stimuli. So I don't feel like I need as drastic a a night drop. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I did have, uh, I did, I was curious, you know, you talked about, uh, you're meticulous with your data cards. Like what kind of data are you tracking? You know, feeding, sheds, weight, that kind of thing? Yep. So part of it is lineage um, mm-hmm. because you get to a certain point where, like, you can't remember which one was the the sire of that particular clutch or, you know, you've got two 2015 animals that you held back and, you know, you can't remember which one's which. So it's the lineage. Um, I do record weight, um, not as often as I should, but almost every animal always gets a starting weight. And then I try to do some, you know, periodic weights so I can kind of see more so on the babies so I can kind of see over time. But um, uh-huh. so weights, uh, sheds, uh, introductions, so pairings, you know, like introduced with this female, got a lock, or introduced with this female, hid under the newspaper. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's just kind of general information. I don't record bowel movements. Um, I suppose I could, but... I don't know what I would do with that data necessarily, but right. I find that the shed, the shed information is actually really helpful because a lot of times with conjures, at least for me, um, even animals that are really good feeders won't, you know, they don't want to eat when they're in shed. And, and sometimes with conjures, it's really easy to tell when they're opaque and they're in shed. And sometimes, especially with the babies, it can be kind of difficult to tell, especially in the yellow babies when they're in yeah. shed. And so yes. if you're going through and you're feeding a whole clutch and you get to one, you're like, well, this one's eaten five times and it doesn't want to eat. What the hell is wrong with it? Why doesn't it want to eat? And you're like, oh, it hasn't shed in six weeks. And everyone else in this clutch has shed in the last week. Then obviously this one's about to shed. So I should just leave it alone, spray it a little bit. And I guarantee you by next week it will have shed. It'll be ready to eat. So right. I find that the shed data is actually really helpful Um more in terms of understanding what's going on with each individual animal. I don't necessarily, you know, I think some people might try to track it in terms of like, you know, growth rate or, you know, how many sheds per year or things like that. I I don't really track it that way. For me, it's just more to know like, well, when was the last time it shed or is it due for a shed? Because that might explain to me why it's hiding under the newspaper or why it doesn't want to eat. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then, you know, the last thing that I had before Owen jumps into projects and stuff was um, – actually, I have two. Let's just get this question out of the way. Uh, there was a question that came in from uh, John Ashman. Uh, he was – recommended locality type for a beginner chondro keeper. What would you say? So I think that kind of goes back to the misconceptions. Um, right. Mm-hmm. I don't – as far as that there's like a particular locality that that's best for a beginner. Um, right. I don't, I, I don't think that there's any locality necessarily that's best for a beginner. I think it's more about the animal and where you're going to buy it from than it is the mm-hmm. locality. Um, right. You're like, I, I kind of joke like, like I love mean chondros, right? Cause mean mm. chondros almost always eat. They almost right. always eat. And even when they're babies, I love the feisty ones when they're babies because I can almost always get 
a feisty baby conjure to eat, even if it's just a, a pinky head. You know, it's the ones that hide their head and run away are the ones that are impossible to get to feed. Yeah, so, right. You know, some people <clears throat> say, well, it's my first chondro, and maybe they're a little bit nervous. They know they've got a, a good set of hardware in their mouth, and they're like, well, I don't want one that's going to bite me. Um, well, you know, but at the same time, you want one that's definitely going to eat because you don't want that to be the struggle, especially if it's mm-hmm. your first one. So um, I don't think it's as much about the locality. Um, I think it's more about the specific animal and who you buy it from. So I would say if it's your first chondro, you've never had a chondro before, you probably want to try to find something, um, you know, that you can buy it direct from somebody who is either the breeder or somebody who has had that animal for a long period of time, as opposed to, you know, an animal that's just recently been imported or is is going through a middleman or a dealer where they may not have any background information or they may not know that specific animal's habits. And they also Mm. are probably not going to be able to give you that post-sale support. So, um, you know, without getting into the whole import or U.S. captive bred debate, I think it's more important about who you buy it from. So do you buy it from someone that's going to give you their time before the sale and someone that's going to give the, give you the support after the sale. And, um, you know, is it somebody that is going to know the habits of that animal? Like, Oh, well that animal doesn't really like frozen thought. It really prefers live or that one will take frozen thought, but it needs to be really warm and it only likes to eat at night when the lights are off, you know? Um, so I think it's more important that you know who you're getting it from and, and, and that specific animal um, than necessarily like, oh, it's a Biok or it's an Aru or it's a designer um, because you can have Biaks that are awesome animals and you can have Biaks that are problematic and you can have the same with Arus and Manakwaris and Sarongs and you can just go down the line. So I don't mm-hmm. think the, the locality, I don't think tells you as much about the animal as it is, um, you know, who you're buying it from and what's the history of the animal, you know, like, when you, when you go to a show and you ask someone, you know, you know, what's up with this animal? And they go, Oh, it's, it's X price. And it's in a deli cup. And I know nothing about it other than I unpacked it last night out of this cooler. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, as opposed to someone who says, you know, whether it's, it's an animal they produced or it's an animal that they got from someone else that produced it or an animal that was imported. And they say, you know, well, I've had this animal for a year and a half or for nine months or since its birth and they can give you more of that background information, I think it, it makes a big difference. And the other thing is that post-sale support is so important because one of the things with conjurers that I've experienced, and, um, you know, I, I think others probably would, would, would echo the same thing, is that a lot of times when you ship a conjurer, um, it doesn't just go right back to doing what it used to, like clockwork. Sometimes they go off feed. Sometimes they have to settle in a little bit. Sometimes they don't like their new surroundings. And so that's why it's really important um, to be able to work with the person you get it from. Cause oftentimes people contact me and they'll say, well, I just got this chondro and nine out of 10 times it's, I just got this chondro at a show this weekend and it's, it's laying on the ground or it doesn't want to eat. And I'll say, well, did you talk to the person you got it from? And like, well, I, I didn't get his number. I don't even know his name. I was like, well, do you know, was it in a, yeah. Was it in a shoebox? Was it in an extra Was it being kept too warm? Like, you know, like you can't, you can't get any of that background information. And so one of the first things I always encourage people to do when they get a new chondro or they, you know, I, even when I ship them a chondro is try to set it up as close to the way it was set up before until it settles in and it becomes established. Um, you know, if it was in a shoebox 
put it in a shoebox. Even if you don't want to keep it in a shoebox long term, mm-hmm. just put it in a shoebox to get it settled. You know, right. um, even though these things show up the next day in a FedEx box and they look just fine, I mean, I guarantee if you or I were shoved in a FedEx box and overnighted through Memphis, we probably would be a little bit like shooken up the next day. You know what I mean? We might not <laughs> want to sit right down and eat, you know, like a big yeah. steak or something. We might be like, you know, I'm just going to sit and I'm going to hang out for a little bit before you shove food in my face. Right. Oh, and there, there's, there is only box. one way to tell. <laughs> there's only one way to know for sure. And that's to ship Eric to a carpet fest through Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could do it. We got Southeast. I love that idea. Going. I love it. Yeah. Perfect. I'll contact you. Robin at Ship Your Reptiles and see if they have a Ship Your Hobbit service. Either <laughs> one. I, I figure if we give him enough, a big enough crate, he should be fine. You yeah. know. You might have to delta dash me. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Is that flat rate or is that by cubic feet? Well, yeah. Delta Delta's gonna be a flat rate, I think, or something like that. I don't know. I know they have to have it in a wood crate. So, but it'll be fun when Delta goes to inspect it. What the hell is this? Oh, there he is. Wheel him out. Yeah. It's the Hobbit. Yeah. Oh, there's the Hobbit I ordered. Yeah. So. Oh, so glad, so glad to be back. <laughs> You'd have to uh, ship him soon though, because I'd have to quarantine him before. Carbon of course, comes. of course, yeah. yeah. Good point. You know what I'm getting? Uh, your yeah, uh, that's just good keeping. <laughs> but we'd have to de-louse him. Yeah, well, that's that just has to happen. <laughs> so, um, anyways, uh, Ian, can you tell us about some of the breeding projects you got going on this season? Sure. So I have a number of pairings for 2018 going on. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them are repeat pairings. Some of them are new pairings. And the thing with chondras is I have learned is that you can do all the pairings you want. Um, the chondras will decide how many clutches they actually want to produce for or not, though. Um, right. So I always try to do, you know, a lot of pairings just because uh, I think, um, you know, you're not, they're not all going to take, obviously. So anyhow, um, so some of the, the projects I have, so – I've got a, a number of projects going on here. One of them is the Lima Bertha project or pairing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Eric's got some pictures of them and, and he'll probably post them up, but this is a really cool pair of, of animals. They, um, they came to me from, from Bob Weishart and it's a project that, um, that I actually got some help from my buddy here. Uh, I don't know if you guys know him, Eric Chung from Chung Reptiles. Uh, really cool local herper here in uh, in the Palm Beach area. So him and I got involved in this Limey Bertha project a couple years ago, and these animals actually came from a guy that um, kind of an old time chondro keeper, Bob Weishart. Uh, he's another Miami guy, and uh, Bob and my dad go way back. And uh, Bob knew that I was into snakes and into chondros, and I was this was a few years ago when I was just getting S and J started, and he said, you know, I've got this old pair of Beox and I don't even know if they're viable anymore, but they've got kind of a long history and it's my very last pair of chondras. And if you'd be interested in working with them, I'd love for them to go to you. And so I took them on and um, it's just a really cool pair of snakes. They, you know, some people might say, well, they're just Beox, but this pair of, of Beox probably pushing 20 plus years old and um, they've been around for quite a while they're big too. Um, Bertha is a big girl. And um, the other interesting thing is that she's blue 
and she's not like blue like a super blue chondro or some of the like killer stuff that Dave D and and some of the other guys are working with but more likely she's probably a, a, a female that went hormonal blue and, and then eventually just never went back but I've never mm-hmm. seen another Biak that looks like her um, there's one in Europe that looks similar um, but she's she's big and she is impressive and she's got a lot of blue and this pair has produced together several times during the period of time they've been in captivity and they've produced some really killer uh, high yellow stuff in particular. And um, so they, they lock regularly. They breed, I swear, like just for fun. Um, But Mm -hmm. I've never gotten any eggs out of her. So um, they've been paired on and off for well over a year now. And, um, and nothing's happened, but I'll tell you, she's, she's looking really plump these days and so I'm hoping that maybe something might happen with her this year I have another project um, it's a, a Kofiao Biak pairing so it's actually that female Biak that I mentioned earlier that's always laying on the floor of her cage when she's in shed um, mm-hmm. she's a really high yellow Biak and she's kind of like a yellow and green cut pattern so we call her Killian because that was my wife's high school colors at Killian High School so um, she's actually pair, been paired with a, a male Kofiao that is owned by Forrest Fanning. So it's a joint project between Forrest and I. And that male Kofiao is actually produced by Stan Shiraz. So, um, so that's kind of an interesting project there because it's a, a U.S. captive bred, I guess, F2 Kofiao. Um, and Forrest sent that male to me a couple of years back, and I've been growing them up. And um, him and, and Killian have been... Uh, paired up this season, and, and we've had a few locks from them. And then the third pairing, um, or the third project on the Condro side, is an Aru to Aru pairing. Um, so I've got a female that I bred uh, in 2016 that was the mom to an animal that I've been posting recently that that's turned out kind of melanistic with a lot of black in it. So it's that hmm. female bred to a, an Aru male. So this would produce F1 um, Arus. And so uh, both of them have a lot of white and a lot of blue. And uh, I think Eric's going to post some pictures of her as well. She just recently started to turn kind of a hormonal blue color as well. And uh, you can even see in that picture of them um, that Eric posted, she's, she's also getting kind of plump. And I think she's, she's building some follicles. So um those are those are some of the Condro projects. We do have some other Condro projects here as well, but those are kind of the three that I'm I'm probably most excited about. I do have some other projects that are non-Condro. Um, they're not here. Um, they're they're at other people's facilities because I'm just getting into some of these other species. But I am involved in the Mango Amazon Tree Boa project with Harlan Wall out at wall-to-wall reptiles in Colorado. So that's kind of an exciting project on the Amazon side. Um, mm-hmm. We also have some emerald tree boa and um, some other chondro projects going. Um, one in particular that I'm working on with Harlan is the Tamika locality. So we have a number of Tamika projects, Tamika Tamika, Tamika Wamina, um, I think Tamika Jayapura. So working with some of those Tamika locality animals to try to produce some some different locality crosses and hopefully eventually some, uh, some pure Tamika. And then I also have some joint projects going on with Keith McPeak up in New Jersey. 
um, again, with some Amazon tree boas and some emerald tree boas and, um, and possibly even some uh, Russian burger eye um, corralis uh, later Very in the cool. season. So, um, you know, just a, a number of different things that uh, kind of dabbling in, and uh, I can't let the cat out of the bag on all the specifics, but hopefully there will be more corralis projects here at S&J in the future, but in the interim, I'm working with a couple guys around the country that um, that I know well that are successful with Corrales and, and at least trying to start to get some things going. Very cool. So um, out of the out of all the pairs, out of all the chondro pairs, uh, which one's got like the best history? The one that you're really excited at, just because of the history, would be the twenty year old carp uh, uh, green trees. Yeah, it would be really cool to see Limey and Bertha produce a viable clutch. Um, mm-hmm. I think for a number of reasons. One, just because um, it would be really cool to be able to show the longevity that these animals can have, and um, mm-hmm. you know that they that they don't need to be bred when they're three years old or four years old because they can they can live a lot longer in captivity than maybe we thought, and that they can be viable for a long time. And I don't know if that'll happen. I mean, it could be that could just be a pipe dream that. You know, they might already be too old. I'm not sure. Um, but I think that would be really cool. I think, obviously, the, the Kofiao Biak project would be exciting just because there's so little Kofiao um, genetics out there in, in the U.S. community. Um, you know, there's just not a lot of pure Kofiao animals available. There's not a lot of them that are in collections. You know, there's just a few right. here and there. Um, there's literally just a handful of clutches of pure Kofiao or even um, outcross Kofiao produced every year anywhere in the United States. So obviously that would be, that would be pretty cool. The other thing about that pairing I didn't mention before is that that female um, Biak is also, she was a red Neo. And um, some people who have looked at her have said that, you know, she might be a Podido um, and not just a, a normal Biak, but it would also be kind of interesting to see, do we get, you know, some, some red babies out of that? Do we get just yellow babies? Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be kind of interesting too. Um, but I think, you know, probably Bertha and Lima, I'd really like to see them produce. I do have some other pairings. Um, they're just not quite as exciting or I didn't have as good of pictures or, um, but I am still continuing tr- to try to produce some more red neos. So, um, those of you who, who have followed S and J for a while or who know me know for a long time, I, I didn't seem to have, I, I couldn't produce red babies. It was always yellow. So, <laughs> Um, I would like to produce some more red babies because uh, I've yet to sell any red babies because I can't seem to let them out of my hands because there's not that many okay. of them. So, um, so some of the other pairings that I've got planned for this year or that I've already started um, will hopefully produce some red babies as well. Awesome. So you're definitely in the camp of the better chondros come out of the red babies. No, absolutely not, actually. Then you um, make no sense. So <laughs> I think um I I think the thing about chondros and and I think most chondro people would tell you the same thing is that it's the fact that they're all cool. That's why you like need one of everything. Or really okay. need like two or three of everything. Um, you know, some of the coolest chondros that I've personally produced so far have been yellow babies because I haven't produced very many red babies. Okay. Um, and I think that 
you know, for me personally, the desire to produce red babies comes out of the fact that for so long I wasn't able to. And so I've only produced a small number of red babies personally. And so I I just want more because I want to have more variety. But, you know, I don't think that only, you know, even when I did produce red babies, it's not like I was like, oh, sell all the yellows, keep all the reds. I was like, oh, I like that yellow. <laughs> well, I did say all the reds have to stay, but I wanted to keep some of the yellows as well because right. the thing that I've learned is that, um, you know, a lot of times they all look the same when they're babies, but they don't all look the same when they're adults. And, um, you know, I've had that experience with other clutches where I kept the entire clutch. And granted, I started with all yellows, but, um, you know, because you don't know what they're going to look like. And sometimes – they all turn green except for that one that ends up being a tricolor. And you're like, oh, I would have never known that that one was going to look like that when it was a yellow baby like all the rest of them. Um, Or the one that ended up with all that melanistic black scalation. You know, so a lot of the cool ones that that we've produced here have started off as yellows. Again, because we haven't produced very many reds. But I I don't have a bias where like, oh, all the yellows are horrible. Sell them all. I don't want to keep any of them. You know, like. Um, right. All the Kofi I'll start off start out yellow, and I think Kofi Al are awesome. So um, I do like the variety of having some red and some yellow. I think it's really cool to hatch out mixed clutches to kind of get that variety when they're hatching out. But I I'm not like you know I'm not so biased to the red ones that you know like forget all the yellow ones. I, I like them all. I think that some of the yellow babies turn out spectacular, and I've seen some pretty awesome. Uh, chondros that started out as yellow babies. Some of the, some of the most amazing arus. I mean, all the arus start out yellow. So if you like arus, you gotta like yellow babies. Um, Kofi all the same way. Um, even though sarongs can be red babies, you know there are some amazing sarong green tree pythons, and they started out yellow. So um, okay, it's not that I don't I, I like red, and I want to produce more red, but I don't want to stop producing yellow necessarily. Cool. So what are you hoping to produce um, from – what's your most anticipated thing you're hoping to produce out of your projects? Well, I think producing pure F2 or F1 Arus would be really cool. Right. Um, you know, uh, and Eric and I were talking about this a little bit the other night. Um, you know, I haven't produced a lot of locality animals because I don't have – it seems like I have one of everything. You know, or I have two males and no female or, you know, it's, it's oftentimes hard to get the right ratios of the right localities to match up. And so that Aru to Aru pairing to me, I think it's going to be kind of cool because that, that one has the potential A to be the first one for 2018 because that female seems to be progressing the fastest or the furthest yeah. along. Um, but also the fact that that could be a, a pure locality pairing and, um, you know, granted, if you're a designer guy, like maybe that's not that appealing, but I really like Arus. And for the most part, the only way you can get Arus is through imports. There's just not a lot of captive bred Arus available. So I think that's kind of cool. I'd like to see more captive bred locality type animals available, um, you know, in the future. I think that would be really cool. Definitely. Um, so can you kind of walk us through your entire breeding season where you where you start, when do you uh, do introductions, and uh, where your temps are throughout? Sure. So, like I said before, you know, I live in South Florida, so it's, it's subtropical. So we really only have two seasons. We have hot and hotter. Um, we don't really have 
you know, the, the traditional four seasons, the, the palm fronds don't turn brown and all fall to the ground at one time. But, um, you know, so for me, I have not really taken like the traditional um, temperature manipulation approach to breeding, uh, even the way that I did when I was doing a lot of colubrids and, and other stuff when I lived in North Florida. Um, granted, it, you know, the weather is a lot colder up there. But so what I've just done over time is I've adapted to use multiple cues to, to stimulate the breeding. Um, and and the, the temperature is one of them, but it, it's not really, you know, as significant, I think, as maybe some, some guys that breed in other parts of the country where they really, you know, where they can use the temperature to their advantage. So I manipulate temperature to some degree, but really photo period and humidity and food a lot more. Um, I think that, you know, there's a number of levers you can pull to stimulate these animals to breed. And you don't have to pull one lever all the way. You can pull a couple levers, you know, halfway. And, and oftentimes you can get the same, the same effect. The other thing that I've found is I tend to do introductions a lot of times almost year round. And, really? um, you know, the animals can be receptive at, at different times of year. And I, I remember, I think it was Rico on one of the podcasts said something to the effect that, um, you know, that using the ultrasound would sometimes make you do things that you wouldn't normally do, but it would keep you from doing other things that maybe you might try because you didn't know any better. And so one of the things that I found is that sometimes pears are receptive at times of the year that you wouldn't expect it. And so I tend to use a, a little bit of a different, you know, process, I guess. So, so I will introduce animals on and off throughout the year. And as long as they're receptive to one another, and they show interest, I'll just keep doing it. And it might be where they're in together for a week or two, and then they're not together for a week or two, and you just kind of keep putting them back together. And as long as they show some kind of interest or they're not grounding or, you know, fighting or, you know, pushing each other to opposite sides of the cage, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let them hang out together. And like, like I said, Bertha and Limey, they've been together on and off for well over a year. And I would say they're probably average a lock almost once every month or six weeks or so. And it's been almost any time of year. And as a result, what I have found actually is that I tend to get eggs sometimes at like almost unexpected times of the year. So um, my season tends to be a little bit later. So a lot of times, like, like I've never gotten any eggs earlier than at least hatching. I probably haven't had any clutches hatch any earlier than June. Right. And a lot of guys, they'll have clutches hatching way earlier in the year. But the flip side is last year I had two clutches hatch the week after Thanksgiving, which was super late in the year too. So Mm -hmm. um, now granted last year, I think I had a a lot of influence. Um, Again, living in South Florida, we have hurricane season. So not this year with Irma, but last year with hurricane Matthew, um, we didn't necessarily have like a lot of damage or anything, but we definitely had a big barometric pressure shift as a result of that storm when it came through. And I don't remember how many pairs locked up, but we had multiple pairs locked up during and, and after that storm. And so I attribute that to, you know, having an effect on the animals. So I don't follow like a strict breeding season, like, Oh, everything starts cool down October 1st. And I start pairing this date and then I warm them up this date. I just sort of read the animals and, um, you know, if the, if the animals are receptive to each other, then, then I'll try introductions. And I think that one of the, 
the benefits that I have is I have in my snake room, well, two things. So my snake room was originally my office, and now it's like a mm-hmm. snake room with a desk in the middle. So um, <laughs> it just sort of has evolved over time. So when I'm not traveling and I'm home, I have the, the luxury that I might be sitting on the phone for eight hours on phone calls for work, but I can be staring at my snakes the whole time. So a lot of times that's a plus. This little, yeah, you can just notice little things like, oh, that female's sitting under the heat panel directly, and she hasn't sat over there in three or four weeks, you know. Oh, I wonder what's mm-hmm. going on. Um, so sometimes you notice things like that. But the other thing is opposite where my adult cages are, or at least where, where the majority of them are in this room, is a huge window, and it's a southwest-facing window. And why, that, well, why that's important is it gets blasted with sun in the afternoon, but it also means that the animals are feeling the effect of that change in the photo period and the, the change in the position of the sun as we get more into winter and that sun is going further to the southern horizon and they're not getting as much of that direct sun, especially in the afternoon. Photo period is shorter. And then if I couple that with, you know, a little bit more of a night drop in temperature, I'm, you know, we didn't talk about it before, but I'm, a, I'm mostly a sprayer. And so mm-hmm. I will stop spraying them when I'm starting to introduce them. So I'm cutting back the humidity. The photo period is changing. I also will start to back off the food in the wintertime. And so I think that combination of different stimuli just kind of gets them going. Um, but I also have found that Females that go early seem to always go early every year. And females that go late tend to always go late every year. So I think yeah, that, agree. again, they kind of, the it, individual, student of the serpent, you got to read the cues from the animal when they're ready. And um, I don't know, for me, it just is, it's worked well. And I just will continue doing the introductions as long as they're receptive. Yeah. Um, so do you do any kind of like, pre-warm-ups to get them ready to go? Do you uh, feed a little bit heavier knowing that you're going to pair up uh, animals uh, before the intro? Yeah, so not necessarily at like a given time of year, but mm-hmm. if it's a if it's a so if they're animals that have come off of breeding, so if they're males that have been breeding or fasting or if it's a female that's laid a clutch, they're going to get fed on a, a heavier feeding schedule um, animals that are slated to be paired are also going to be fed a little bit heavier. But then once I get to the point that I'm like, all right, like they're conditioned, they're, they're ready to go. Like this pair, whether, regardless of the time of year, like they're going to be paired up in the near future. I actually will start to back off the feeding. Um, mm-hmm. I want to, you know, one of the things that I always notice is when you put a male in with a female and the first thing she does, she has a big bowel movement, right? She's trying to like yeah. clear everything out. So, like, no need to have a full belly on there to start with. So so I'll actually start to slow down the feeding a little bit um, going into the breeding season. But then what I actually find is that typically the males, they, they don't necessarily all go off of feed. Again, they're individuals. They have different personalities. But a lot of my males will either go off feed or they will become kind of picky feeders. Where, like, right. maybe they, instead of eating every time, maybe they eat every other time or... Maybe they only want a rat instead of a mouse or vice versa, or they only want to eat with the lights off. I find that the males, once they start getting into that breeding mode, breeding seems to be more important than eating. Not to say that they won't eat, and I have some males that I swear they would breed and eat at the same time if you let them, but, you know, the the males will sort of, they're not as interested in food. The females, 
once they've started to be paired with a male, if things are going to start to develop, I find that their appetite almost goes up. And so right. I'll actually, so you, if you imagine kind of like they're, they're, they're fed heavy, then they're kind of fed light while they're being paired. And then they, they start getting fed heavy again. Um, because at that point, if they're going to take, and they're starting to swell and build follicles, they need that extra caloric intake to build those follicles. And those females, they get almost like ravenous. You know, like you walk past the cage and they're the ones that are like hitting the front glass because they just want to be fed all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then typically uh, my experience, and I know it's, you know, it's not always the case, but my experience is that my females always go off feed, usually around the time that they have that mid-body swell, um, they typically go off feed and then they're not going to eat again until they lay. So it also is a kind of a good indicator for me. Like I know if she's ravenous and then all of a sudden will not touch food, like that's usually a clear sign. All right. That, that male does not need to go back in with her anymore. Right. Right. Okay. So now do you uh, use uh, one male to multiple females or do you have one boy for uh, one girl, I know you said you kind of had uh, one of each localities kind of deal, something like that. Yeah, you know, I um, I typically do one to one, and then mm-hmm. if I have a situation where, um, like I said, like the female has gone off a of feed, she's swelling up, she's turned hormonal blue, I'm pretty sure she's gonna go. Um, then I'm not going to put that male back in with her anymore. And then I'll have to make a judgment call on that male. Um, you know, did he fast the whole time? So he's gotten thin because he hasn't eaten in six months or did he eat pretty much all the way through? He's got good body reserves and, you know, he's ready to, you know, to eat and, and continue breeding. So I'll kind of evaluate that, that male in terms of, you know, him individually. And then mm. also see like, you know, do I need him to plug into a different project or a different pairing somewhere? So, you know, if it's something like, you know, Bertha and Limey, I'm probably not going to pair him with anyone else this year because he does not like to eat during breeding season. Um, right. If it's, you know, if it's one of my other males that pretty much will eat any time and, you know, I know that, you know, it's not going to be an issue. I might pair him up to a second female for that season but I don't think I've ever bred a male to more than two females in one season. Okay. There was so, a, uh, <clears throat> there was a question that came in in the chat real quick. It's uh, from uh, Brandon. How common is it for people to miss ovulation cycles? So, you know, um, I, I don't know how common it is. I can tell you that I have not witnessed a lot. Of, and I assume what he's talking about is like the, the mid body swelling, right. Where uh, a lot of people call it like the ovulation, but when they have that, that big, that big swelling, mm-hmm. I actually have not seen it very many times myself. So it, I think you can miss it because they can hide it fairly well, depending on the way that they're positioned on the perch and the time of day and everything else. Um, mm. but also because of my travel schedule, it seems like I, I always joke, like, you know, if a snake's going to lay eggs, it's going to happen five minutes after I'm supposed to be on the way to the airport on the day <laughs> I'm leaving on a trip. Right. You know, right. if she's going to have that mid body swelling. It's going to happen like, you know, the Saturday afternoon when I'm at carpet fest at Bill Siegel's house in Texas, you know, like right. it just always seems to happen when, when I'm not there. 
So for a lot of, uh, for several years, I had never even seen it myself because I always missed it. So um, I think it's possible, Brandon. I, um, I don't, I don't know the, the situation or the scenario, but I think it, it can, it's not always as obvious as you see in some pictures. It can be more subtle, but it also can be the sort of thing where it was only for a few hours on one particular day and you missed it that day. And by the next day, it just didn't look the same. Yeah. I mean, you can miss uh, swells and in any snake and I, am the worst at figuring them out and i've i I'll, i can never look at one of my snakes and be like clearly she's ovulating i totally miss it every time i just throw boys in and they, they know more they know better than i do so yeah i suck at it yet i still get eggs so clearly you can do it without seeing so um but speaking of things that probably happen while you're traveling i imagine uh hatching like you know you get the eggs and then you're saying like you know she's gonna lay eggs right when you're at bill steagle's house um my thing is i think last carpet fest i went to bill's i actually had eggs hatching so can you kind of walk us through eggs laying getting set up in the incubator or do you maternal and then uh how do you deal with babies yeah so that's i mean that's a whole lot there so um, I guess we can start, you want to start with the eggs first, like laying? I do. Yes. All right. So, so early on, I used just the traditional nest box method that, you know, it's in the Maxwell book and it's pretty well documented method for, um, for, for breeding chondros. And, and exactly like you said, it would always be, I would be out of town or I would be leaving on a trip or. Um, she would lay them in the water bowl or she would lay them outside the nest box or she'd lay them in the nest box and then not sit on them. Uh, it just seemed like the nest box always was problematic, right? Like, do I lock mm-hmm. them in the nest box? Do I, do I open it to peek in or am I going to scare her? Or, you know, do I take a picture and risk her coming off the eggs? Um, and so actually I picked up a really good trick and, um, and it pains me to give credit, and, and he's probably listening, so he'll, he'll get a kick out of it. But, you know, as much as it pains me to have to give a shout-out and credit to Gary Scavino, um, mm. I have to tell Gary that he actually gave me a great tip, and he's posted it all over Facebook, so he's very sharing with it, but it's the no-nest-box method. And, Gary, if you're listening, it's, it's, it's been great. And I know I told you when I saw you, saw you at Tenley, it's really, like, the best tip anyone's given me with regards to uh, – to, to breeding chondros as far as the egg laying process. And basically you just remove the, the nest box from the equation. And so rather than have all the stress of, is she going to go in the nest box? Is she not going to go in the nest box? Is she going to lay outside? Is she going to sit on them? Is she not going to, you basically just turn the entire cage into a nest box and you take right. away all but the lowest perch. Uh, at the very end, you take away the water bowl Um, and Eric's got a picture. I'm sure he'll post it up here in a minute. And basically you have nothing but an empty cage with a a big thick bed of sphagnum moss and a log and maybe a low perch, maybe no perch. And every time I've done it with the exception of one time, I have found the female beehived on the eggs under the log, perfectly textbook the way she, I want her to be. And the one time she didn't do that, she laid them from the perch, spilled them all over the bottom of the cage. And you know what? They were just fine because they were sitting in like four inches of sphagnum moss. 
And so rather than have to stress over the entire egg box situation, I just got rid of it. I don't use one anymore. So all I have to do is I watch for that prelay shed. And I know once she's had that prelay shed, I'm going to start to pull the perches out. And then eventually I'm going to pull the water bowl out. I'm going to fill the bottom of the cage with sphagnum. And then I'm going to let her do her thing. And I have, um, I've, I've had them laying in, let's see, I had one female who laid under the log like that the morning of one of my kids' birthday parties that we had like 50 kids come to the house. I had mm-hmm. one female who laid under a log like that. I was in Georgia, I think visiting my kids at summer camp or something, came home and found the female sitting on eggs. I have no idea. She could have been there a day. She could have been there a week. I don't even know how long. Um, I have another one where I pulled the eggs last year um, and got a really cool video actually of pulling the eggs from her, but it's worked great. And um, it's just, it's actually taken a lot of the guesswork and the stress out of it for me because of, you know, the travel situation as far as not always being here, but just the guessing and the not knowing. And so whenever people ask me about it, you know, well, what do you do as far as a nest box? I'm like, I don't even use one anymore. Gary Scavino, no nest box method. Um, it's, it's really, it's really worked well for me. And so what I do then is I pull the eggs. So all, all artificial incubation, I did maternal incubation at the very beginning and I had a lot of trouble. I had females that didn't want to sit on eggs. I had females that spilled eggs on the bottom and I had one female who actually went the distance and it maternally incubated the clutch all the way till they hatched. And when I pulled mm-hmm. her off, she was literally such a limp noodle. When I pulled her off, I didn't think she would survive to the next morning. And I said Jesus. to my wife, I said, I said, I will never do this to another chondro. Like it's just, it, she just looked horrid. She looked like, she looked like the most dehydrated, emaciated, imported wild-caught chondro you've ever seen. And you're, you would have been like, oh, put that thing in the garbage. You know, and it was like one of my original females, and it was just, she was just spent. And I, didn't, I, I honestly did not think that she would, she would live the night, even though she had successfully incubated this clutch for me. And it turned out she survived, and she went on to produce, I think, two more clutches for me. But I said, I, I said I'll, never, I'll never do this to another female. And so I artificially incubate everything. And as a result, I typically can get that female back on food within a week or two of her laying eggs. Right. It just makes a huge difference, a huge difference in their recovery. I mean, just probably the difference between recovering in a year and recovering in two years. You know, just that big a difference. And so everything goes in the incubator. I use a, a no substrate incubation method. Um, okay. Eric's got some pictures there. He's posting up of uh, the setup. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's pretty much like a box inside a box kind of setup. The outer box has the water. The inner box has the eggs in it. And uh, really the purpose of the inner box is just to prevent any splashing or sloshing of the water or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, I straight I straight bake them. So I don't do the lower temp at the beginning and the end. I just I straight bake them at, at one fixed temperature. And, um, and then towards the end, I will put a perch in there. So as they start to hatch, they can crawl out. And I like those, you can see the picture there of the, the David the Brown PVC. 3D printed perches. Yeah. yeah. They work, they, they work right really well. Top. Yeah. It's amazing how like right out of the egg, they have that arboreal instinct and they just, they immediately go vertical and they're looking for something to grab onto. Run high. <laughs> so exactly. Um, 
we do have a question from Bill right there. Uh, he wanted to know if you soak your gravid females before they lay their eggs. No, you know what? I don't. The only time I really ever soak any of my animals is when they have shed problems. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really don't, I don't even have that many shed problems. Usually it's if, if one's gone into shed and I haven't been here. And so it hasn't gotten kind of like that extra spray down or whatnot. Um, so sometimes then if I come home and it's like had a bad shed or it's got a bunch of stuck shed, I might soak it overnight. But for the most part, I don't, I don't really soak the females before they lay. It's not something I've, I've really done. I do thaw a lot of my rodents in warm water. So they do get extra hydration just that way. Um, but I haven't really had that issue. I, like I said before, I'm a sprayer. Mm-hmm. So I do tend to spray a lot. And those gravid females, once I start putting that sphagnum moss in there, it, I'm keeping it pretty humid. You know, I'm spraying that moss down every day or every other day because I want to keep the humidity high, you know, because I, want the, I don't want those eggs to dry out when they do lay. And so um, I haven't really encountered any issues where I need to do a soak on them, so the gravid females at least. Awesome. So now that we've got our little hatchlings, uh, how do you go about setting them up, and uh, do you, how do you go about getting them established? Well, you know, so I always tell people that, uh, you know, the producing baby chondras is, is like, like running a marathon like a sprint mm-hmm. and the last part is all uphill like in the rain <laughs> and it's like in sand and that you know you've, you've done all this hard stuff like first you've kept the adults alive without killing them and then you've gotten them to breathe and then you've produced viable eggs and then you've actually incubated the eggs without killing them and then you've actually hatched them without them dying like at the very end you know like they often do, they pip and then pull their head back in and then die for no reason. Mm-hmm. And um, so now you finally have a baby chondro, and now the hard part actually starts, which <laughs> is getting the stupid thing to actually eat. That's like the hardest part. So it's yeah. like you've ran this entire marathon and sprint, and now they're like, okay, and now to finish it, you're going to go uphill, backwards, blindfolded, in the rain, and now you got to get this little like pencil thing to actually eat something. And um, – so unfortunately, early on, it was a pretty steep learning curve, and, and I killed plenty of baby chondros, and I know that sort of seems to be a rite of passage. Like, until you've killed a bunch of chondros and put them in the freezer, you're not really a chondro breeder. Um, so early on, it was really challenging, and it was frustrating, and, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunately as cliche as it is, it's, it's true. Like, you just got to do it. And until you've done it, you don't know how to do it, and you can't really explain it to somebody, you, you have to do it yourself. And so over time, you sort of develop a technique, and you, you learn different tricks. Um, but at the same time, some babies are just easier to start than others, and some are just a total pain in the ass, and you want to just flick their heads when, you know, when you've spent an hour trying to get them to eat, and they won't. So it, it is really frustrating, and it, it's one of the toughest parts with chondros, one of the things that I have done, and I know it's probably a little bit controversial, and I don't know that um, you know everyone will agree with it, but I have actually started to initiate feeding trials before their first shed, and okay. I actually have had surprisingly good results with it. So I initially did it on kind of a whim. So um, I was talking with Harlan and he had told me some story about having a baby that was so vicious that um, it was only like halfway out of the egg and it was striking at him. 
And he's like, that thing would have eaten if I had fed it. Or maybe he told me he did feed it, whatever it was. I was like, there's no way, like, how could it eat right out of the egg like that? Or it's like literally in the egg. And then I had a mm-hmm. crushed hatch a couple of years ago. And these things were just so incredibly aggressive, literally striking while they were still half in the egg. I was like, you know, I bet you if I put a pinky in front of this thing, it would eat. And, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to thaw a pinky out. I'm going to see what happens. And I thawed a pinky out. I stuck in front of the son of a bitch ate. Huh. And like aggressively, like without even thinking twice about it, I was like, huh, I'm going to thaw another pinky out and see if I could repeat that. And then I did it and another one ate. And wouldn't you know, I can't remember how many were in that clutch, but it was like, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 20. And I think almost every single one of them ate before it shed in that clutch. And, wow. And like, frozen thawed ate before its first shed. And so I started trying that more and more and it hasn't always worked. Some of them I couldn't get to eat before they, they had their first shed. But in a lot of cases I can get a significant number of them to eat before they shed. And it's, it's not, I don't think it's a hunger, but it's not a feeding response. And a lot of, a lot of what you do with baby chondros to get them to eat is not a feeding response. It's, it's a defensive response. But I think what happens is when they're, when they're going through that first shed, their eyes are so opaque between the, the, the residue, the dried up yolk and, and, and amniotic fluid from the egg and from hatching and everything else, and the combination of them being opaque and shedding, they can't really see very well. And so I think what happens is it's like a fear factor. And, mm-hmm. you know, baby chondros, like, they're, like, they'll strike and strike and strike and strike, and it's, like, just a shadow will make them strike sometimes. And so I think what happens is they can't see very well, so they're really eager to strike. And so you put that pinky in front of them, and they just grab it just because they're scared out of their mind, and they're going to strike anything you put in front of them. And you do it a couple of times, and they just all of a sudden start to eat it. Yeah. And, cool. um it's worked really, really well for me. And I, my, my success rate with starting baby chondros has gone dramatically up. And, um, you know, unfortunately there are some that you still have to assist feed and, um, you know, to get them started. But for the most part, uh, it's going a lot better for me. There are some different tricks. Um, Chick down is still a a go-to for me. I've tried some of the different scents that uh, Nick over at Reptilinks is making. He actually right, sent right. me a bunch of different the there's like a fish one and a lizard one and a, a gecko one and I think even a poultry one. He sent me a whole bunch of them and I was, mm-hmm. I was super excited and he was like, Oh yeah, the hognose guys are going crazy, you're gonna love it. Or maybe one's a frog scent. Anyway, he sent me a bunch of them and I was really excited and I set up like a whole little experiment. I had different deli cups with different scent in it and I was like, Man, this is gonna be awesome and I I couldn't get a single one of them to work for me. Huh. Um so I don't know. He also sent me some of like the little mini reptilinks. I think Bill Siegel was talking about on one of his shows that he's used them or that he tried them, but I didn't have any luck with them. And it's not a knock against Nick or the reptilinks. I think they're great products and Nick's a good person. But um, for me, it just did, it didn't work for me. I think the thing that just works for me is I, I have to have the kids out of the house. I got to have a block of time. <laughs> And I just, I put on some music and I have to just sort of zone out and it's hot, hot, hot water, frozen thawed pink. And, um, and then a little bit of chick down and usually just some persistence. Um, but there are some other tricks like, uh, there's the, um, 
like the headhunter trick Harlan uses where you put a pinky head on the end of a shish kebab beer. And if they're striking and dropping and striking and dropping, a lot of times you can get them to grab the pinky head and take it. Um, Bill Hughes does something similar with a zip tie so that you get kind of like a little bit of bouncy action to it. And the same thing, you put a pinky head on it and you can get them to take it. Um, I've heard other people using, you know, chicken soup to scent or turkey fat or, um, I think Keith McPeak was telling me he has really good luck using feeder fish. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of tricks out there, but the big thing is just persistence. And I think you, you, you kind of figure out what works for you. And then, and then it's sort of like you sit down and you're like, all right, little baby snake, it's you and me. This thing keeps <laughs> going down your, your throat one way or the other. We're going to do this the easy way or the hard way. And, um, you know, Man. usually if they're striking, I can get them to eat eventually. Uh, it's the ones that won't strike and that are runners. Those are the ones that are usually the most problematic. It is a production. Jeez. Do you, do you, uh, do you, I know Buddy talked about this on um, one of his podcasts where he does it, or maybe it was even our podcast, but he more or less <laughs> would feed during the day um, babies. Do you have a preference yeah. of the time of day? Yes, I completely agree. I have, again, it's just my, for me personally, what has worked better. I have far better success feeding babies during the day than I do at night. And it it doesn't make a lot of sense because they're not nocturnal, you know, they're nocturnal. They're generally just chilling out during the day. They're not sitting in hunting position, head down, called alluring during the day. They're doing all that at night. But I think Mm -hmm. for, for the most part with babies, you're looking for that defensive strike. You're, you're usually, at least in the early stages, it's not so much a feeding response. Uh, sub-adults, adults, man, most of them would prefer to eat at night. I agree. Uh, in fact, I have some that, like, they only want to eat at night. But a lot of times the babies, you know, they might be in the hunting position at night, but they might be, you know, moving around, cruising all over the place at night. And so then they become more likely to run. I feel like during the day, especially when you get that first reaction when you open that drawer or that tub, you know, they're coiled up, they're sleeping, they're defensive. You know, they're not looking to eat. And so you give them a little tap and you irritate them a little bit. And their first reaction is to strike at you because they want you to leave them alone. And when they grab that hot, warm pinky, you know, you can get them to coil it up and start to eat it. Um, But when it comes to babies, like new establishing neos, I always do it during the day. And I actually, I usually start in the morning. I find like my best success is in the morning. Okay. Interesting. <clears throat> and and that's right. just um, me. I mean, I think, I think the thing about chondras is, you know, there's a lot of ways to be successful and what works for one person may not work for someone else. And so I just go back to that student of the serpent thing with Eugene. It's, it's all about just finding what works for your animals. And sometimes it's very specific to even individuals. Like, you know, even within a group of babies, sometimes you find, all right, like this group of babies, they'll take frozen thawed. This, these couple of babies, they'll take frozen thawed, but they want a little chick down on it. These over here, they want a live pinky. They don't want a frozen thawed. And then sometimes you even have some where, uh, you know, like I, can, I can't get them to take a, fro- a live pinky, but I can tell, take them, get them to take a live African software. So oftentimes right. it's a progression until you can get them all to take frozen thawed you kind of have to work through them until you figure out, okay, what does this specific animal want? Because they don't all want the same thing. I think, uh, you know, the, the, I think you're right that you have to kind of 
go to the individual, figure out what works for you. But I think the other thing is, it's like once it starts working, just be consistent, <laughs> you know, uh, don't try to change it up. And, you know, I, I see a lot of people all the time. It's like they're try- constantly changing what they're doing. And I know, like, you want to, you know, if you see something that comes along, you want to try it or whatever. But even with breeding, I don't I mean, maybe it's easier with carpets and chondros, but, um, you know, when you get into some of the other Morelia stuff or, you know, scrubs and stuff like that, it's not Morelia anymore. But anyway, just being consistent. Um, I think once you get a rhythm to your room, I think that really uh, makes things a lot easier, um, in my opinion. But I completely agree. Yeah, I, I heard Keith McPeak uses that term all the time, the rhythm of the room. Um, yeah. I think you get into a rhythm as a keeper. The animals get into a rhythm. Um, you know, they, you just, once you get that rhythm, yeah, don't, don't fix it if it's not broken, you know? Right. Um, but with babies in particular, and I think that kind of ties in with why the record keeping is so important to me with the babies, because I'll sit down with a clutch of babies and, you know, I will write down, this one took frozen, this one took alive, this one took frozen scented, this one took an African soft fur. Because you want to know all those things so when you go back the next week, you know, okay, well, this is what this baby took last week, so I'm going to start with this because you want to get them in that rhythm and you want to get them, you know, used to, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over again before you go and start changing it up. Right. Right. Absolutely. So um, we do have – so we're now in overtime, so now we're recording, but – Holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one quick. Uh, I better go Uh, get another beer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, We do have a – so you kind of hit – we, we we missed it at the beginning of when we were talking about keeping, but we're, you know, I, I had asked you about like, if you had any keeping hacks that you develop with keeping chondros that makes it easier. We kind of hit on a few of them, but there was two in particular that I wanted to make sure we got out there. One was that clamp um, thing uh, that you sent me and I'm going to share the picture in a minute. And then the other one was the penny uh, thing that we kind of talked about with Harlem before, but yeah, um, Maybe you can hit on hit on that. Yeah, so you know, I know we talked about the no nest box method, um, and I and I've mentioned it before. The deli cups for water bowls, I think, is a it's an obvious one, but maybe some people don't think about it as being a hack. Just the fact that you can you know pitch them and get clean water easily, I think it's a big yeah. deal. The penny in the water is one that I just started doing this year. Um, Harlan kind of turned me on to that, and I know other people have done it. And I've heard about it, um, not just in reptiles, but in, in other animals as well. And, um, and I'm liking it. I don't do it with the babies. I only do it with the grow out and the adults. And what I've noticed is I still change the water regularly and I change the deli cups regularly. But what I've noticed, especially if I'm gone for a few days because I've been traveling and maybe, you know, the, the water is gone a day or two longer than I normally would or I would like to is you know how you, you typically get kind of like a little bit of a bacterial slimy buildup on the inside of the water dish? Right, yeah. Right? You don't get that with the penny in the water. And I'm sure you would get it eventually, but it's not like I leave the water there for a week or two at a time. You know what I mean? Um, but right. what I've noticed is it seems to slow that down. And so it's just anecdotal, and I don't have any scientific evidence to back it up, but, but I am using the penny in the water bowl, and I do like it you got to make sure you get the right ear penny and everything else. And 
Harlan's got some great information out there on it, but, but that's one that I've used. The other one is kind of, it's a stupid little trick, but it, it, it's, again, it's a really good one. So I was up visiting uh, Rocky Gravely up in Georgia this past summer, and uh, we're checking out his collection and everything. And one of the things that had always bothered me um, with the, the, um, with the adult cages is that you have to have a, a temperature per, a probe for the herpstat. And generally speaking, I had always attached it to the perch directly under the radiant heat panel. And so there's a lot of different ways you can attach it. I, I've used zip ties. I've used twisty ties. Um, some friends of mine up in Minnesota, Bo and Caitlin Larson, they use uh, like Velcro straps. But it's always an issue because when you've got, when you want to pull that snake out on the perch and you're holding a two foot piece of PVC and you've got a thousand plus grams of mean, you know, wanting to bite you green tree python on the other end of that stick, the last thing you want to be doing is monkeying with how do I get the probe unattached, whether it's the Velcro or the twisty tie or the zip tie. Cause as soon as you start doing that, you got to take your eyes off the snake and now you're going to get tagged. So I was up at Rocky's place and I'm looking around at his cages and he's got all of his probes attached to the back wall of the cage. And I'm like, Rocky, that's brilliant. How did you do that? I, I love it. And he pulls out this little, it's like a dollar 99 at home Depot. And it's a package of like 18 of them these little cable clamps and uh, and he just literally attaches that to the back wall of the cage and leaves enough slack in the probe that just kind of dangles. So it's, it's practically right under the heat panel at the same height as the perch and it doesn't have to attach to the perch. So you're completely free to pull the perch in and out. No big deal. And All right, uh, I just thought that that was, <laughs> that's really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Yeah, I just I do thought like it was that. like the best thing. It was like a twenty cent piece of plastic and a little screw, and now I never have to worry about attaching or unattaching the temperature probe to the perch. And now I can take the perch out anytime I want. I can clean it. I can clean all around. Um, you know, I don't have to worry about it. And it was it was such a brilliant thing. And I was like, Rocky, this is the best tip. He's like, this is the big tip that you know you came to see my collection. I said. You have no idea that you can change the way that I do things. And uh, so I immediately went to Home Depot and I found those little things. And like I said, it's like $1.99 for a pack of like 20 of them. But I went through and I changed every single adult cage. Because one of the things I like to do is if I'm going to be introducing a male into a female's cage, I'll just take right. that whole perch out of his cage and I just stick the whole perch in the female's cage. You know, because okay. then I don't have to mess with anything and he can come off the perch when he wants to. The other thing is when you're taking photographs of adults, you don't want a picture of like a four or five foot chondra all spread out trying to wrangle it. You want it all coiled up tight on the perch for the photograph. Well, right. so you need to be able to pull that perch out quickly and easily without disturbing the snake. And so this affords me the ability to not have to ever touch the temperature probe um, and not have to worry about it on the perch. So a little tiny simple thing, but for me it was a it was a big deal and it's really helped me quite a bit. That's cool. awesome. That is a good good tip because uh, I was uh, I was struggling with that this past you know just recently I bought some AP cages and I was struggling with that same thing and now now I know what to do. So awesome. Yep. Um, Cable clamps. Thank Rocky Gravely. He's the one who turned me on to that. Hmm. Uh-huh. Awesome. So, 
uh, actually wait, wait, wait I, I, I do want to put I do want to put a little yeah. plug out there for Rocky while while I'm thinking about it. So sure. Rocky's a super cool guy. I had the chance to meet him this past summer. He is one of the guys that used to do the Condro Coalition. And okay. I don't know if he wants me saying this on the show, but I'm going to say it anyway. So if I get in trouble, so be it. Um, <laughs> Rocky has all of the displays and cases and banners and everything from the old Condro Coalition that wow. they used to do at Daytona every year. It's all sitting in the cases in his basement at his house in Georgia. And him and I had a whole long talk about how cool would it be to resurrect the Condro Coalition. So if any of you guys are out there listening and you know Rocky, we should start like a campaign to, to tell him that we want to bring back the Condro Coalition. I know a lot of guys talk about there's not a lot of Condros at shows anymore and you know, that's uh-huh. something that's missing from the community. And I think it would be pretty cool if we could come up with a way to resurrect it, maybe for Daytona or maybe for the October Tinley show. Um, but, you know, how cool would it be if there was a, something already set up and Condro guys from around the country, even if everyone only brought one or two animals, but you could have all these cool animals set up somewhere. So I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I know he's got all the stuff. And if you're out there and you like the Condro Coalition and you want to see it come back, we should, we should all tell Rocky we want it to come back. Cool. That would be awesome. awesome. I, was, I was lucky enough at my first Tinley Park to actually see, I guess it was like the last time they – did it um i can't remember if everybody was there but i know terry rico jason stevens i think was there a couple other people but it was it was pretty cool it was really impressive to see all those condros in one spot but um let's see so yeah, we're going to be running close on time, but uh, there's two things I definitely want to hit on. Obviously, one is the Southern Carpet Fest. We'll hit on that in a minute. But um, the one thing that's always impressed me with you, Ian, is your social media presence. And obviously, you're giving all the credit to your wife. <laughs> but maybe you can talk about that and how that's helped, you know, get the S&J reptiles out there. And maybe you could share a tip or two uh, with people that want to up their – social media presence uh, out there. and Yeah. Um, well, you know, like I said, I have to give a lot of credit to my wife for that. Um, so anything that you really like about our social media, I probably did. And all the stuff that you don't like, we can direct all the content <laughs> to her if you want. Um, so she's probably in the other room rolling her eyes at me as she listens to the show. Um, so, you know, like I said earlier, like a lot of really successful reptile businesses out there, this is a team effort here at S&J. I can't keep up with all of it myself because I do have a day job. This is, this is really just kind of our hobby. And so uh-huh. I do rely on her to do a lot of our social media stuff. I, I always jokingly call her. She's the, the CMO of, of S&J, the chief marketing officer. And um, when we were getting this started, you know, I, I told her, I said, well, you know, I can I can manage to take care of the animals, and I think we can we can produce some animals, and you know, kind of getting the the hang of this thing. And I said, but you know, selling them is a whole nother a whole nother game. And um, I started poking around on Facebook and seeing all these these guys with awesome pages and posting all kinds of cool stuff. And it was kind of like, how do you even get started? Where do you even start? And you know, S and J is something that we you know, we developed and grew from the ground up everything from the name to the logo to the website. 
and uh, and we're always looking for new ways to promote S and J. I think, um, you know, obviously Facebook is a big part of that, and there's so many different avenues that you can use to promote yourself or your animals or your business on Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because, um, you know, you do have a segment of people that you get all kinds of crazy questions. Like, you know, at least once a week I have somebody message me like, can you tell me what morph my ball python is? It's like, I don't right. even work with ball python. <laughs> I have no idea mm-hmm. what morph it is. Like, I can tell you it's a ball python, but aside from that, maybe I can tell you if it's scaleless or not or whether it's albino or not, but I can't tell you <laughs> Nothing whether major. it's double yeah. head, lavender, tiger, ghost, anything. I, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't live in that world. Um, so social media is good in that way as far as getting your name up, but it does attract a lot of other people. And then you do also get sort of, you know, these people that come out of the woodwork, either from, from your past or from, you know, they just want to knock you down when you're, when you're doing something. So, so it, you kind of got to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because you do get kind of a cross section of people out there on social media, but it is a way to reach people that you, you never would otherwise. And, um, you know, we had, um, I'm trying to think, we, we started S&J, we started with just a Facebook page, and then it evolved to, um, or actually it was like a, just a profile, and then it evolved to a business page, and then we started joining groups, and then we started an Instagram, and then we had a website. So, I mean, you know, like it's evolved over time. And it's interesting how there are some people that are on Instagram that are not on Facebook. And there's some people uh-huh. that are on Facebook that are not on Instagram. It seems like a lot of people are on both. Um, and then you do have all this peripheral stuff, you know, King Snake and Fauna and Morph Market and the, Morelli, the, the MVF, the Morelia Veritas Forum. So, you know, there's a lot of different platforms to get your, your name out there or to be able to exchange information and, I mean, I think that's one of the greatest things is the access to information is, is unbelievable now compared to what it was years ago. And so, um, you know, so we, we kind of try to cover all of our bases. Sometimes, you know, it, it's about, you know, places I've gone to travel. Sometimes it's about things we have going on here with animals. Um, but it's amazing how you also get a global reach. Um, one of the things I probably get a, probably more requests than anything else, especially lately, has been people messaging me from other parts of the world asking me, can I sell them snakes? Like France and other parts of Europe, people in Asia, people in Canada, people in Mexico, people in South America. And, you know, I'm not really set up for, for export or for sales outside the lower 48. So I always, right. I always decline and I tell them, unfortunately, I can't. But it's just amazing to me. I'm like, how the hell did somebody in France figure out, you know, who I am or to even to contact me? And I think probably the moment when I really had to kind of pause and, um, and kind of like, you know, really think about the big picture was we had a video that we posted. It was in, I think, September or October of last year. And it was me pulling eggs from a female. Um, we had been out of town, I think, Right, but now, so whatever it was, she was sitting, you know, in that setup I described earlier, and she's sitting under the log, and she's all beehived. And I don't know if you've seen the video or not, but I took a video. My wife took a video of me pulling the eggs off, and uh, right. and we posted it. Mm-hmm. And first of all, videos get like 
I don't know if it's 10 times or 100 times, but a significantly higher amount of traffic than a picture does. You're like, if you post something that's just text and it gets X amount of traffic, if you post a picture, it gets like 10X amount of traffic. Well, if you post a video, it's like 100 times X traffic. And I guess that's just the nature of social media and the internet and whatever. Um, but it's amazing how if you take a picture of something, the exact same thing and then a video of the exact same thing, the video always gets more attention. So at any rate, so we took this video and we posted it. And somewhere along the line, I cannot explain it. I can't tell you how it happened or where it happened or why it happened. But it, it went viral. And it literally ended up it's like somewhere between 15 and 20 million views. And it went viral in, like, Southeast Asia, like hmm. in Indonesia and the Philippines and then India. And when it hit India, it was like someone poured gasoline on our Facebook page. We were, we were adding at one point, it was like over 100 likes a day to our Facebook page. It was just, it was just unreal, the number of, of people that were, were clicking on this. And, and even to this day, I still get comments on that almost every single day, like, I'm looking at the post now. It's been, it's been shared over 5,000 times, and it's got over 45,000 likes or loves or hates or whatever. Like, I don't even know what they call that anymore. But <laughs> you know, over 45,000 people have bothered to click on it. And what's funny wow. is that it's, it's, it's fairly evenly split, the comments I get of, what are you doing to that animal? It belongs in the wild. You should never take eggs from its mother, poor snake, to, oh, my God, that snake is beautiful. Are you selling the babies? You know? <laughs> but either way, I'm getting the attention and the traffic, and it's just from when you look at just the, the analytics of the data behind it, you're like, why the hell are all these people in India so interested in my conjures, you know? And I can't right. explain it, but that's one of the, the weird, cool things about social media is that, it connects you with people in other parts of the world that you would literally have never had any opportunity to connect with in a million years in any other platform. Oh yeah. That is a plus side. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there are people that you don't want to meet with and you have to ban them from your <laughs> Facebook page because they threaten to turn you into PETA and they talk about how like, like someone was talking about like, would you give up your children? Cause, uh, Cause of course I put something on there about how, taking the eggs allows me to have a better success rate of hatching the eggs and better survival of the babies. And it's better for the mom because she can go back on her food. And yeah. like this person from some other part of the world wrote something back, like, would you give up your children if I told you that they could be raised in perfect nutrition and perfect education and everything else for the first 20 years of their life? And I thought, actually, like you're talking about paying for my late, kids college. That's, I mean, that's actually not a bad deal. Like, we're talking boarding school, right? Like You know um, something I don't because I, I'm down for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I do get I do get some kind of crazy people and we have had to block some people or ban some people from our page. Um, but you know, the flip side is that the the reptile community is is really one of the things that's that's amazing about this hobby, you know. You've got working with the animals that's really pretty cool and you know, obviously that's what drives a lot of our passion and interest, you know, as individuals, but collectively as a community. But that mm -hmm. sense of community, the fact that there is a reptile community, and a lot of that is driven by social media. Um, you yeah. know, I, I travel a lot for work, and 
literally almost every city that I go to, I can find somebody that's interested in reptiles and I can connect with them. And oftentimes I've already connected with them. So, you know, I already kind of know what they're into and they know what I'm into and we can meet up and exchange information. And it's, it's a way to, to interact with those people that share a common interest. And I've met some amazing people in the last couple of years within this reptile community that I never would have met if it wasn't for social media. I mean, you know, meeting you guys and Carpet Fest and, you know, just all the people around the country that I've met as I've traveled around, those are connections that, you know, you, you would have a hard time making with people even 20 years ago going to reptile shows. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it allows us the opportunity to, you know, almost put into hyperdrive that, that whole process of interacting with each other. I mean, we are kind of awesome, Eric and I, so I, I see that. <laughs> More Eric uh, than you, Owen. But damn it! <laughs> You're just a co-host, right? It's because he's short, isn't it? Because he's got a pity the short guy. That's right. Piss I take off. it where I can get it. Speaking <laughs> of community, and speaking of that, Southern, I keep saying Southern, Southeast you know it. They're different. <laughs> yeah, you better not call it Southern. Evan's somewhere like in a corner having an aneurysm right now. Calling <laughs> it Southern. If we can get yeah. through a show without Evan having an aneurysm, it's a weird show. So you know, <laughs> let him just go and have his thing, and he'll talk to us later. So yeah. I really thought that he would he would be a like a guest caller or like a, maybe a prank caller or something. I'm surprised that we got through the live segment without him calling in. I just didn't click on anybody. Yeah, it was, no, no, he might have. No, we didn't. We weren't. We weren't paying attention. So yeah. I yeah. Just didn't anyway, yeah, there was been like hitting redial. He's been redialing for like, yeah, whatever. Let me in. He's been hitting the redial button for the last hour. Yeah. Nope. So Southeast so, Carpet Fest. Yes. So Southeast Carpet Fest. Um, so. Southeast Carpet Fest is plan- or Southeast Carpet Fest planning is well underway. Um, I'm not really sure how I ended up at the, you know, the conductor of this train, but um, I feel a little bit like George Washington. You know, like I fell asleep at the end of the table, and when I woke up, they're like, "Congratulations, you're president." And I was like, huh? "What? I'm <laughs> what?" So, yeah. you know, so the, let me let me tell you a little bit about the story about Southeast Carpet Fest. So. Um, you know, for the listeners, you know, you guys already kind of know some of this, but I was fortunate enough to go out to Texas this last year to be part of the Southern Carpet Fest, which uh, is put on by a group of guys in in Texas, uh, Evan being one and and Bill Stiegel being another, uh, but it's really a, a team of people that put it on. And I met you guys there for the first time and just a ton of other people. And it was, it was honestly just an amazing weekend. Uh, I kind of made like a whole weekend out of it. And um, I had such a great time that when I came back, I, uh, I think, Eric, maybe I asked you initially, but I was like, hey, like, Southern Carpet Fest was such a blast. Like, when is Southeast Carpet Fest? I want to go to another one of these things. And right. um, so I don't remember. I think it was, Eric, I think it was you who told me, oh, you need to reach out to KJ and to Dave Pearson. And right. so I reached out to KJ and Dave Pearson. I'm like, man, I'm like, like Southern Carpet Fest was awesome. Like, when is Southeast Carpet Fest? I want to go. Like, I want to get it on my calendar. And they told me, well, we, we did one in 2015, and 
we didn't have a lot of a lot of interest and we didn't have a lot of people come and and I think it was just a one and done sort of thing because basically because people suck and um, no one in Florida wants to do it and so I don't think we're gonna do it anymore (laughs) and I was like well that's kind of a shitty answer you know and uh, so I thought well you know like we can't let the guys in Texas show us up quite frankly you know like Florida and the rest of Southeast we got to represent and we got a pretty strong reptile community. And so I thought, well, what would it take to resurrect this thing or, or to, you know, get it going again? So the, the initial Southeast Carpet Fest was 2015. And mm-hmm. um, so I started kind of talking to different people and Eric hooked me up with a couple different people. Cause I didn't really know a lot of the more, you know, carpet or Morelia oriented guys. I was more into the Condra side of things. And, um, and so one of the people that, that I met through that process was Dave Palumbo and um, Dave's a super cool guy. Um, his, his company called Palumbo's pythons and boas. And um, so we started talking and we said, yeah, you know, like this sounds like a cool idea. Let's, let's try to get something going. And so then in Daytona, we had a bunch of people there and I got a bunch of people together and, and we all kind of put our heads together and everyone's like, yeah, let's do it. And KJ and Dave were there as well. And they're like, yeah, let's, let's totally resurrect this thing and take it to the next level. So, so after, I guess, basically a two year hiatus, we're bringing back the Southeast carpet fest. It's going to be Saturday, February 10th. It's going to be at Dave Palumbo's house in Cape Coral, Florida. And Dave recently moved down, I think from New York and he's got a a freestanding building on his property where he's got all of his reptile stuff. And he's also got like a bodybuilding business. So He's got a bunch of cool stuff and a lot of space, and he's agreed to host. So if you're interested, you can message me. You can message Dave Palumbo. We do have a Facebook group, Southeast Carpet Fest. We do have a Facebook event page um, for Southeast Carpet Fest 2018. If you are interested in coming, please go to the Facebook event page and RSVP, because otherwise I don't know whether we should have enough food for eight people or 15 <laughs> people <laughs> because I don't really know how many people are coming. And what I learned this week is that the Facebook event page, when you go to it, I thought it was like a yes or no thing, but I guess you can choose yes, no, or interested. So yes. like we invited 400 people and only like 12 are coming, but I've got like 68 people that are interested. But I have no idea if those 68 people are actually coming or not. So I don't know if I need food and drink and parking and seating for all those people because they're just (laughs) interested. So if you are more than interested but you actually want to come to Southeast Carpet Fest, please go to the Facebook event page. Please click on the fact that you are coming. And then also send me or Dave a message because we're looking for volunteers to help bring stuff. It's going to be, you know, it takes a village. Everyone's got to bring either a drink or food or a dessert or trash bags or folding chairs. I don't know. We've got a whole list of stuff that we need. So if you're interested, come out. Um, the name Carpet Fest, I get a lot of questions about that. Like I myself am not a carpet guy. I'm a chondro guy. But it's really, you don't have to be interested in any particular species of Morelia or carpet. You don't even have to be interested in snakes. It could be frogs or turtles or lizards or whatever. All right, maybe not the frog people, but any of the other yeah, No, just kidding. Um, you don't even have to like people. reptiles. Um, <laughs> but it's really, the whole idea, as you guys know, but it's 
It's that it's not a show and it's not a symposium and it's not a convention. It's, it's just like a, an opportunity to be social and to meet people and to talk about reptiles and we'll be able to check out some cool stuff at Dave's place, but come out. It's February 10th, 1 PM at uh, Palumbo's pythons and boas in Cape Coral. The other half of that whole deal is that we do have a t-shirt sale going on right now. Uh, the t-shirt sale benefits us arc. Uh, the t-shirts are $20 plus shipping it's all through the booster website, which apparently is now called customink.com. They changed it's their name. I don't know same, why. It, no, it's um, the same damn company. So it's the same but, thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Owen, Owen helped me figure it out. And we've got um, a couple people, Gemma and Dave on the committee that are, that set it all up for us. And, um, and Jeff Frederick knocked it out of the park with a killer logo for us. So we've got these awesome shirts. The goal is to sell 50 of them. And I will tell you that as of right now, we have sold 16. And nice. it's only been up for a little over a day. Um, now, Bill Stegles bought one, and Jason Brumley bought one, and Uh-oh. I bought two. Jeff Frederick bought two. Owen, I don't <laughs> see your name on here. You will not. So you're on the naughty list. Um, so we need, to get a, we need to get some more people on here. But uh, it does benefit U.S. ARC. And like I said, our goal is to sell 50 shirts. So we do have a little ways to go. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. <clears throat> Eric, they have a committee. But, you just yell at me and we get stuff done. I mean, that's usually – I don't understand how they have a committee. So, yeah, we, we, well, won't, we won't have a committee. <laughs> no, no. There's, there are no committees here. <laughs> Silence you. Back don't to work. Don't get excited, Owen. It's not, it's not a very big committee, but we oh. actually do have a number of people that are involved. It's about a dozen people or so. Damn it. We have more people, still... but some people have dropped out. Uh, well, it, like, and I was about to say, like, well, you're like, we have to try to get the word out and try to see how many people are coming. I'm like, see, I just yell on this, like, every Tuesday as Carpet Fest is getting closer and closer and stuff gets done. I'm like, Ian should just, you know, scream at his podcast. Oh, wait. So, yeah, I got it. There could be a little bit of a disconnect there. So, well, so I'm screaming on your podcast. That's fine. That works. Um, <laughs> But go buy a shirt. Even if you can't come to Carpet Fest, you can still buy a shirt. You can help support our efforts. We do want to raise some money for U.S. ARC. And uh, the catch is that it's only open for another 12 days. So we have to get the order in. I think it closes on January 21st in order to have enough time for the shirts to be printed and shipped. So Mm -hmm. that means we have to sell another 34 shirts in the next 12 days to meet our goal. So if you're listening and you're interested, please go buy a shirt. Um, if you're coming, buy a shirt. If you want to give a shirt to somebody else, buy a shirt. You can also make a donation. Um, but we, we definitely appreciate your support. And hopefully we're going to have a good turnout for Southeast Carpet Fest. And this will be a, an annual thing. And we'll do it every year and become part of the extended Carpet Fest family. Um, I do know that uh, the GTP Keeper radio guys are going to be represented. So Bill Steele is coming to Southeast Carpet Fest. Um, I nice. don't know if he's bringing Brian with him or not, um, okay. but I asked if Brian was going to be his Sherpa or, you know, be, uh, <laughs> be coming to Florida as well. I don't know if you could ship Brian the same way that you can do, you know, ship your hobby. No, so no, you, no. You need a much no. bigger crate to ship Brian than, than, than to ship Eric. But, um, yeah, yeah. That's one of those things. I know. Yeah. I know Eric is Eric is fifty fifty whether he's coming. He says Owen oh, mm. that you're sixty forty, and I asked yeah, him yeah, yeah, he's sixty. Right. 
<laughs> so may, maybe we can twist arms a little bit, but um, I know there are some guys coming in from out of state. Some people are flying in. Some people are driving in. Uh, if we have enough people, we're talking about maybe doing like a Friday night dinner, maybe do another event in, during the weekend. There's the Naples Zoo or there's some other people with some collections in that area. So we're hoping that we'll be able to get a good group of people together and we'll be able to build on what they started in 2015. And hopefully Eric and Owen, if we don't get you down this year, then hopefully we'll, we'll definitely get you down next year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. So Ian, we do have the wrap up questions we want to quick get to before we run out of time. And then we have to talk about what the hell is going to happen on uh, the next episode of Morelia Python Radio. So let's get that going. So, Ian, what is your next reptile purchase going to be? Well, um, I would say it's probably not going to be a chondro. <laughs> um, <clears throat> All right. I, uh, I do have my eyes on a few more Corallis that I would like to add to the group that I'm working with. And probably, I don't know if it'll be my next purchase, but probably the thing that's at the top of my want list at the moment Um and if Matt Minotola is listening, he'll he'll know exactly what I'm talking about because he got what I wanted, which are some green Sanzinia. Oh that yeah, is, he did. I mean, that is really at the, <laughs> the top of my list right now, um, and it's not even a matter of being able to afford them or have the space for them or or the the want for them, but it's just finding them. Those things are yeah. just near impossible to find and. What I understand is that if you go to the ham show in, in Germany, apparently they're like two, three hundred bucks, and you can find them all over the place. They what don't have the, the Mandarin phase over there, and here we got the Mandarin phase, but no one has the greens. So um, it seems like that's kind of the holy grail in the Sanzinia world, and uh, I might have to wait for mats to grow up and be big enough to breed. But I don't know if I'm that patient. So that that's probably the thing that's at the top of my list is some green Sanzinia, but I, I would like to add some more Corallis of, of a couple different species. Cool. And uh, I'm definitely getting the Sanzinia. They're definitely very cool uh, since I got to play with some of Matt's. But anyway, uh, so if you could work with any species of reptile without any limitations, whether it be price, legality, or anything like that, what would it be and why? Well, I think given my current interest in arboreal boas and pythons, it probably would be um, if not the green Sanzinia, probably uh, Amazon Basin emeralds. Okay. Um, I think they're just beautiful. And you look at what you know Ed Marino is doing with some of that high white stuff. It's just it's just amazing. And uh, but it's it's pricey. You know it's mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> I'd have to sell a lot of conjures to be able to afford a <laughs> basin collection. A lot of conjures. Um, and right now I'm just not in a position to to make that leap. But that's that's a kind of a holy grail animal for me. I'd really like to at least get some basins, but if, if I could work with anything without any limitations, that, that might be it. Awesome. I know the Condor guys are all cringing right now at me. <laughs> <laughs> They'll get over it anyway. Yeah, um, so now I've seen you, the dark side and, and it's not that bad. It's over. They, <laughs> they've lost you. Soon you're going to have tons of them. But now, Ian, if you could travel anywhere on the world, or in the world, uh, without limitations, where would you go, and what would you be hoping to find if you went herping there? 
you know, that I think is a really easy question. So, you know, if it was without any limitations and, and personal bodyguard, et cetera, et cetera, I think it would have to uh-huh. be Papua New Guinea, um, you know, to have the opportunity to go traipse around in the, the jungle over there and find condors, um, you know, I mean, watching those videos of, uh, of Dan traipsing through Kofi Al, finding condors on rocks and twigs, I, I just, I would love to do that. And, and I have been to Central America, so, you know, I feel like going to the other side of the world and, and seeing, you know, old world species and, and especially being able to find something like condors that I work with so much in captivity, being able to find some in the wild would, would just be really cool. That is awesome. So, Ian, why don't you throw out uh, any contact information that you have uh, where people can find you if they want to chew your ear off about some uh, green tree pythons, if they want to talk to you about uh, Southeast Carpet Fest, or if uh, they just want to check out your page and all the other cool stuff. Yeah, so you can find us readily on social media. So on Facebook, you can find me, Ian Bissell. You can also find S&J Reptiles. Um, on Instagram, SJ Reptiles, um, our website, sjreptiles.com, our email address, sjreptile at gmail.com. And then um, as far as Carpet Fest, you can find um, both the event page for Southeast Carpet Fest 2018, and then there's also a Facebook group for Southeast Carpet Fest. Um, I am generally very readily available on social media. If you send me a message, Usually I'll get back to you within 24 hours. You know, if I'm traveling or whatnot, it, it just might take me a little bit uh, to get a chance to respond. But I do try to respond to everybody that sends me messages within 24 hours. Uh, we do have a bunch of conjurers still available from the 2017 season. So if you were thinking about picking something up, uh, depending on, on weather, shipping windows, we do have some animals available now. And those are all posted on our Facebook page. But we're always adding new things. So if you're looking for something, uh, just uh, give us a shout. Awesome. Awesome. <clears throat> well, thanks for coming on, Ian. And, uh, you know, welcome back anytime. And uh, hopefully we'll see you at Carpet Fest. Absolutely, guys. I really appreciate you having me on. And I look forward to more Condro guests on the, uh, the show this year. And <laughs> hope to see you yeah. at Southeast Carpet Fest. And, maybe at Southern Carpet Fest, and I'm going to try to, to make it up for Northeast Carpet Fest this year as well. You're going so, to try to do three nothing, Carpet Fests in one year, you insane person, you? <laughs> I, if I have my way, I will hit three Carpet Fests this year, plus October Tinley and Daytona in August. That's so, like, that's like nice. three and the unofficial fourth Carpet Fest, and then Daytona. Damn. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. And I'm actually going out to California. I'm going back to New Jersey later this month, so I'm hoping to go see some, some of the guys up there. And then I'm also going out to San Diego at the end of the month, and I'm hoping to see some of the guys out there as well. So uh, stay awesome. tuned. I, you know, I'll keep posting pictures wherever I travel and, and letting you guys uh, enjoy visiting the collections uh, virtually with me. Please. Cool. That'd be awesome. Awesome. Plus, we need blog ideas. So, yeah, please, God. <laughs> so, <laughs> so go buy a Southeast Carpet Fest T-shirt and uh, come to Southeast Carpet Fest. Awesome. Right. Well, thanks again, Ian. We'll catch up with you a little later, all right? Sounds good, guys. Thanks. Have a good night. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon. All right. 
Uh, let's see. What do we got? What do we got to close? Well, this? next Ow. week. Next week we have Nick Mutton. He's coming. Holy back. crap! <laughs> Uh, if you want to tickle your inner herp nerd, Nick <laughs> uh, Mutton is a right. show to listen to. All right. Uh, so one of the shows where you and I are just like, hey, Nick, and then that is all we get to say. But yeah, we haven't, we haven't talked to him in a while. It seems like it's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. So uh, we're going to get him back on. The last time we had him on, we talked about Python phylogeny. I even say that right? I don't even know. I don't know. Um, Probably not. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. We're we're gonna come up with some crazy topic. Uh, so if you have some uh, questions uh, that are on a more advanced level, I guess uh, maybe <laughs> uh, something that you were thinking about, uh, <laughs> send them our way. Yeah, please Nick don't make us that. ask Nick how to set up your ball python. It will not go well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's not a good question. For Nick. That's not a good question no, for him. <laughs> I, I did have a question for him, and I have it on my sheet. And it's like, um, um, why do IJs change color, especially at night? I'm curious of his thoughts on that. So we'll see. So does Owen Pelly Python. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious on what he thinks the reason is for that. Oh no. Owen has dropped. <laughs> he must have quit. He had enough, so he was out. All right, so he left me solo. Uh, I will close out the show. So, yeah, next week, Nick Button. So if you have a question or a topic or anything that you were interested in talking to Nick about, um, be sure to send it our way, uh, and we will be sure to hit on it on the show. Uh, so uh, that should be an awesome show. As far as us, like I said at the beginning of the show, uh, com is our website. Uh, our email is info at moreliapythonradio.com. Uh, so you can send us uh, any uh, questions, comments, uh, guests you'd like to hear, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and just go to moreliapythonradio.com and it will point you in all the directions of all the other stuff that we have going on. Um, there's Owen messaging me now. Uh, and as far as myself, E.B. Morelia, ebmorelia.com, that's the next website that I'm going to be tackling on uh, updating. Um, but uh, you can see what I have going on as far as breeding uh, over there on my breeding diary page of 2018. Uh, you can see the, the, the things I got, uh, you know, locking up so far and, uh, and you know, I guess if you're interested in any of that and you want to get on a list or whatever, hopefully I'll have uh, eggs and babies. Um, just send me a message uh, in my email for there is uh, eric at ebmorelia.com. Um, as I said, uh, I started up to YouTube, uh, so um, you can see the links uh, over on my Facebook page or on the website as well. Um, so I'm really going to try to give a presence for carpet pythons on uh, YouTube because there's only a, a couple couple of people that are doing it. Uh, I think uh, Riley and uh, uh, Jay and maybe somebody else. But other than that, there's really not a whole lot of love for carpet pythons on there that I can find. So if there is, you know, shoot, send me a link. Uh, I'm curious to see what it's about. But uh, I'm going to try to tackle, uh, you know, some of the uh, some of the stuff. Uh, as far as uh, 
carpet pythons go and misconceptions and morphs and uh, subspecies and all those kind of different lineages and all that kind of stuff. So um, if you were looking for something in particular that you wanted me to talk about, uh, send me a message and uh, we'll hook it up. Uh, and Owen is rogue-reptiles.com. Uh, you can see what he has going on. I'm not really sure if he has any shows coming up uh, anytime in the near future, but uh, if you uh, if you just go over and follow him at Rogue Reptiles, um, you will uh, you'll be able to see what he has going on. Um, I guess that's all we have. Uh, so uh, until next week, uh, thank you for listening to Morelli Pilot Radio, and have a good night.